Airline Pilot Guy, episode 313. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A in the APG headquarters building in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show was recorded on the 1st of March, 2018. Today's episode, an ATR-72 crash in Iran, an update on the pedestrian on the runway at LAX, more news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale, RAF Form 414, Volume 2. So get all settled in, tray tables and seatbacks in their upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on, Flight 313 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. I'm Captain Jeff, a captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier. And joining me today from... 1,000. New York City, his palatial hotel room. Overlooking, I'm sure, uh, Central Park. He is a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Well, hi there, Jeff. I'm just trying to stand up, look out my window to see what is actually outside. I think it's the CVS, <laughs> which isn't quite it's, the same as Central it's Park. It's the but... CVS in Central Park. <laughs> <laughs> Great to be just... back on the show. <laughs> Thank you very much. I was just using my imagination. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, if you if you just said a a, a, a brick wall, that probably would have been close. <laughs> I yeah. know. It's Sitting in exciting. the New Yorker, the Wyndham New Yorker. And, okay. Uh, Studio seven something or other. Actually, I, I hate to say the number because it's reminiscent of a Boeing. So I'm not going to. Okay. Okay. Well, while we uh, think about that a little bit more, let's introduce our next host. Wow. Last but certainly not least, from his oh, and he's not in the stately mansion in Smyrna. He's in the Dulles, Washington area. Barbecue, beans, master, bourbon connoisseur, motorcycle riding pilot for a major U.S. legacy carrier, soon to be Captain Dana. Well, hello, everybody. It's uh, great to be back in another fantastic episode that we have coming up ahead of us. And uh, yes, it's uh, not such a beautiful day in the Washington area, a little overcast. I guess that weather moved up from the Atlanta area. So getting to sit back and Enjoy an awesome day here uh, on the APG. So great to be here. So that was a new theme song that I had, um, what do you call it? Commissioned by a very famous podcast um, jingles guy. Uh, I've been listening to uh, a man named Adam Curry. Uh, He was, uh, a lot of people call Adam the podfather of podcasting. And he was one of the very first, and I'm talking like one of the first two or three uh, guys that started 
this whole thing we call podcasting. And uh, early on, on his show, The Daily Source Code, um, a, a man, a great guy, Jeff Smith, uh, was uh, doing a lot of his uh, jingles and his sound clips and that kind of thing and uh, got to, a chance to meet Jeff uh, in the early days back in 2005, 2006 in uh, California at the Podcast and New Media Expo. And uh, he's just, as I said, a great guy. And I've always loved his music and his jingles and finally had an opportunity to meet up with Jeff in Nashville a couple of weeks ago, well, about three or four weeks ago now. And uh, I, I said, you know what? I think it's time now for a new jingle for the Airline Pilot Guy show. So that is uh, what he uh, did for us. He's done a couple other things as well that we'll be playing in the show. And one of them he just quickly did for me. He says, is there anything else I can do? And I said, well, you know what I'd love? I'd love to have something like this. Ooh, Jeff's pet peeve. Because I have a lot of Jeff <laughs> pet peeves. <laughs> It's amazing how quickly he came out of it. You want to do that one again? Yeah. Jeff's pet peeve. Jeff's set piece. No, no, no. Here, let's listen closely. Jeff's pet peeve. Pet peeve. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. Okay. I think you need to put something on the screen. I need closed captions. (laughs) Anyway, uh, he he did a a coffee fund, a new Java Jive for us as well. So. We'll be playing that um, coming up. So looking forward to that. Yeah. Anyway, so thanks, Jeff Smith. If you're listening, probably not. Um, thank you for uh, doing all that great work for us. And again, uh, check out Adam. Well, Adam Curry's no no longer doing the uh, daily source code. He hasn't done that in a while. Uh, but he uh, his current show now is called No Agenda, and he does that with John C. Dvorak. And uh, you'll hear occasionally. Here and there, some stuff that Jeff Smith did for uh, his show as well, or their show. Anyway, moving on. Um, how is everybody doing today? Yeah, Great. pretty good. Yeah. Fantastic. So um, both of you are not at home. Uh, Captain Nicholas, start with you. You're in the New York City area. Has the snow hit New York yet? I know it's on the way. Is it really? I hope not, uh, because uh, currently it's quite warm and pleasant. I've just come out of a very snowy UK and uh, might be struggling to get back uh, because it's still pretty bad over there. So we had a bit of a nightmare getting out, um, a little big delay on the ground getting uh, de-iced. Uh, and it wasn't really that bad, but the, the worst weather came, um, ye, well, I guess uh, this morning in the UK, uh, because uh, they preemptively cancelled a number of flights, which included my return flight. So I don't have an airplane arriving to fly home in. So uh, they're passengering me home on one of the flights that is coming out. But, of course, uh, I suspect the since they've reduced the number of flights, they're all going to be absolutely rammed. So uh, mm. I'm not expecting a comfortable flight home. We were talking about this before the show started, uh, that I believe with Acme, if you were deadheading home positive space on that kind of a length segment, they would give us a business class seat. Isn't that correct, Dana? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, I think that's what We would contract. absolutely be in business. Now, it's too bad that you're not going. Well, there's a chance you will be, right? Or Well, there's not. space available to upper, but... Uh, yeah, because you're not traveling to a duty, and there's no requirement for you to be rested. Mm-hmm. Um, then uh, they can 
try put you on in economy. Well, let's all hope for you yeah. that you get uh, the. Uh, I'll be class. the first time I've flown. I've flown all the way to Hong Kong, either on jump seats in the economy. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm well familiar with the uh, the discomfort of the back of the airplane. Mm, especially, you know, you're not a short man like I am. Uh, you're a what six foot something or other. Yeah, six three. Yeah, I do tend to struggle a wee bit in the uh, in the small seats, but uh, eh, needs must. I need to get home. Yeah, well, at least true. you won't, at least you won't be hungry because you can munch on your knee caps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good point. Uh, that's a picture I don't really want to think about. Um, well, you'll note that uh, Cap or Captain uh, Doctor Steph is not with us at this moment, but uh, she will be joining us later in the show. So. Stand by for that. If there's any reason at all for you to stay there throughout the show, it's to wait for Dr. Steph to join us. So uh, let's see. Um, Dana, how have you been doing? Well, you know, pretty much a very boring life this past week. So nothing really to report on. Um, just had a fantastic three-day trip. One leg out last night. 30 hours here in Washington's Dulles and doing the podcast. Otherwise, I may have tweeted out a uh, a meetup, especially a 30-hour layover, but no one had the show today. I decided not to do that. And uh, tomorrow, three very easy legs, one back to Atlanta, then down to Palm Beach and back and done. And then I'm going to be an official captain long before an airline captain this weekend because I take delivery of the uh, new uh, new APG party all right <laughs> oh wow so i'm being a boat captain <laughs> doesn't that make you a bosun or a uh you know a master mariner or a something or other i'm a master something marinator like i can <laughs> marinate the pickles and some i'm glad you went that direction and, with that <laughs> yes likewise yes in in uh you know like mushrooms and so forth but no um i did take in you know because i am always on the safe side and everything that i do you know, there is no requirement in the state of Georgia to have a boat license. You just have to have a driver's license. And if you're under the age of 21, I believe it is, you have had to have had some type of boat uh, certification course, a safety course. So I opted to go ahead and take that course so I could be familiar with the uh, proper operational rules and what I should do in certain circumstances and what I need to have on the boat for safety. So uh, I know it's not a show about boat boating, but, uh, you know, I'm kind of looking forward to this uh this new adventure yeah i'm looking forward to it as well i think a lot of us that uh, are aviation buffs also maybe you know secretly we don't tell anybody but we're kind of boating um enthusiasts as well or at least have an interest in it i do um but uh oh that reminds me we have some feedback later in the show kind of complaining about that uh too much uh too much boating going on in the show Oh, right. Yeah. Well, you know, we're just going to have to have an APG meetup on a boat at Alatoona. Okay. Yeah. I'm looking forward can to I, it. Um, can I call you, uh, uh, a seaman? Is that what you are? Uh, <laughs> can I call you seaman? Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm a, actually technically a lakeman. A lakeman. No, I, I prefer seaman. Seaman stains. That'll be. Uh, <laughs> 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 no, that'd be seaman. S E A. M A N, like a uh, yeah, that's the ocean. Exactly, yeah, uh, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh boy, so, yeah. I've lost control already. Pronunciation of that word. <laughs> <laughs> okay, with that, uh, oh, um, what about you, 
Jeff. No, I was going to say Jeff. Dana uh, just um, sent me a crew log, and I just posted that late last night. So if you are part of the Coffee Fun Cadre, and I'll tell you how you can be part of it if you'd like, uh, you can uh, enjoy Dana's um, latest crew log, and it's all about barbecue, let's see, Boston beans and barbecue baked beans and all kinds of And you're supposed to variations. queue up the sound effect. Oh, yeah. So I, I Boston. Baked beans, and you end up with, yeah. there you go. Perfect. Yeah. I, and in the text of the thing, I said, uh, all I know is it's uh, the uh, magical fruit. The more you eat, the more you toot. All right. Um, Have we all got that out of our system now, guys? I hope so. Good. No, <laughs> probably not. Anyway, uh, I uh, had a chance to, I haven't flown, I think, since the last episode, but, well, I take that back. I have flown, but not for Acme. I uh, got a uh, notification from Stephen uh, last week. Well, I, t- I think I talk about it on this little teaser of a recording here, so uh, let's play that. Ah, the sweet sounds of a Lycoming 180 horsepower engine at 7,000 feet, somewhere between Atlanta and Electric City. I'm uh, in the co-pilot seat, just watching, just mesmerized by this whole thing, just above the uh, cloud layer here at 7,000 feet, and Captain Stephen Ivey is at the controls. Here, say something, Captain. Hey, everybody. Just flying the plane right now trying to get the altitude to work but you know autopilot doesn't always work that way all right yeah we're heading uh for a very expensive hamburger at uh the place in uh, what is it called greenville um downtown i think we're heading to uh stephen called me up said yesterday and said or actually texted me and said hey are you interested in going flying and i went absolutely so here i am so that's just a little snippet of um, one of two recordings that I did while I was flying in Stephen Ivey's uh, beautiful Mooney 1962 model, I believe. And uh, if you are a member of the Coffee Fun Cadre, you'll be able to hear the whole thing. I haven't uploaded that yet, but uh, stay tuned. I had a great time flying uh, general aviation with, uh, with Stephen. And uh, had a great uh, burger at the uh, Runway Cafe at Greenville downtown. And, uh, yeah, look forward to doing that again. That was a lot of fun, Stephen, if you're listening. Um, I, I haven't yet had a chance to fly uh, in his lovely uh, Mooney, even though he did promise, if you recall, to fly me to Pittsburgh in it. Yeah. Well, wings over Pittsburgh and then reneged on the deal, which broke my heart. Oh, uh, I don't think I've ever forgiven him. <laughs> I, I live in Atlanta too, Stephen. Okay, well, let's move on. We have a little little envy going on here, jealousy, envy, whatever. Uh, so, Remember, I can I can do your BFR, Stephen. Yeah, I'm sure that you'll have the opportunity because you know he's always out there trying to build time. So, um, I'm sure that you'll get a chance to do that. I buy gas. I don't give gas. Uh, let's see. And then later that day, uh, after we came back to Atlanta, he, uh, he picked me up at PDK. We flew over to Greenville downtown in South Carolina, then back to PDK, uh, the uh, DeKalb Peachtree, uh, 
airport. And then I got in my car and drove up to Cobb County, not too far from uh, your neck of the woods, Dana, and uh, had my FAA physical. I'm not dead. Yeah. He said he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not. He isn't. Well, he will be soon. He's very ill. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. I'm not dead. <laughs> nice one. <laughs> if you walk in, you're usually not dead. Yes. Uh, I go with a, a, a gentleman named Ted Carter uh, up in uh, just off of, uh, what is it called? Paces Ferry and not too far from the Galleria. And, oh, that's uh, the uh, Kaufman's old dig. Uh, well, no, uh, but there is a connection there. Uh, no, he, he was further down over toward the uh, restaurant called Canoe right yeah. on the river. No, uh, Ted is up uh, farther up closer to the, uh, when you get off at uh, 285 and uh, Powers Ferry. There's a quick trip gas station. And yeah. then just past that is where his office is, right next did to a- buy, Did he buy out Williams? Um, Maybe. Don't think so. Uh, he's been okay. kind of uh, doing his own thing. He, he was a previous Eastern pilot and then a, um, an Acme pilot, and then uh, became a doctor. Because uh, I think he had some kind of a medical issue and he couldn't fly anymore. So he uh, went ahead and got his uh, uh, doctor's uh, degree or license or whatever. I think you just go, you just put something in the mail and you get something. I'm uh, not sure exactly how that works. Or, or go to the gumball machine, put a quarter in. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, Interesting. Well, it's actually a bit, of a, um, a bit of a Russian roulette thing. You know, you could get to be able to officiate a wedding or you could become a doctor. Yeah, I think he chose the doctor thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, a, a fine doctor and uh, got my uh, once every, well, two times a year physical out of the way for February. So uh, next time is in August. And this one had the EKG and apparently everything is uh, is pumping correctly and ticking just fine. So Yeah, anyway. but your wife would say you don't have a heart. That is true. That is true. But uh, as far as... Uh, but they've proven otherwise. Physically, I have one. <laughs> uh, let's see. Website I have here in my notes. Uh, the website performance has vastly improved thanks to whatever it is that Arash did in the uh, in the background. So hopefully everybody is uh, getting some good performance from the website if they go there to check out things. And speaking of the when, website... When do you think we can oh, go live on the... Yeah, well, I have that next on my notes here. You're not, you're not seeing them. Uh, getting close no, to no. having the PT page slash feed up. We're, we're getting really close. Not there yet, but <laughs> it's, it just takes longer than you'd think it would. And uh, so hopefully we'll have that up in the next year. Um, <laughs> Mitchell Williams sent in, uh, actually he commented, we were having this, this discussion on the last episode about uh, RPM and thrust, uh, uh, percentage of thrust and that kind of thing. And uh, he commented, now I don't know if this is actually true or not, but uh, fan power is a cube function or power equals N1% to the third power. An estimate of power would be at 88% N1, that would be about 68% power. At 92% N1, it would be about 78% power. And 105% N1 would equal about 115% of available power. Now, that I don't know if that um, follows along with all engine types, low bypass, high bypass, 
and that kind of thing. He did have provide a link to the JT-8D uh, variants on the Boeing 727, some engine data on a uh, website. But again, some other people said, well, I don't know if you can really say that with today's modern uh, high bypass fans. So I have no idea. I'm not an engineer and I know nothing about this, but I just thought I'd throw that out there. What about you engineers? <laughs> yeah. Not me. Okay. Well, all I can say is that um, when you're sitting there at idle and they're forty percent of power, that is very little power. When you're at a hundred percent, I don't think that's a mere sixty percent increase. I think it does. Uh, you know, the ch- difference between forty percent and say sixty percent isn't very much. When you get up the difference between any percent and a hundred percent, I think that's a lot of power. So I do think it's probably more going to be closer to a uh, logarithmic. Um, curve than a straight line uh, on a graph, but uh, exactly whether that relationship is true or not, it might be a good approximation. Yeah, I uh, I mean, it sounded reasonable based on uh, the JT-8Ds that uh, Dana and I fly, um, but again, I'm not so sure it holds true with the the MD-90 engine, the uh, 25-28 that we fly, the higher bypass uh, turbofan. Well, in this there's something to be said in the, in the fundamental difference between the engines is that the JT-8D does not have a fuel controller like the um, the newer generations, which have FADEC. So we, you know, are it's more pure jet power versus a, a, a high bypass. Well, that's just a matter of by- the fuel control unit. Um, I yeah, think that... <clears throat> go ahead. No, go ahead. No. No, 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 you. No, I insist. No, no, no. Insist. please, please. No, I just, I just <laughs> think that the uh, the controller has a, a a logic within it or an algorithm that will control or and will allow you to do certain things, and not allow you to do certain things, and it has more power and reserve, I would say, than the JTD. That is probably true, but I'm not sure what that has to do with um, percentage of N1 and thrust, but whatever. I don't know. Maybe the uh, yeah. the engine experts out there will be able to uh, elucidate or um, elaborate a little bit more. Um, but um, anywho, just th- now I'm kind of not happy that I even mentioned it. But okay. Um, <laughs> Why wouldn't you be happy you mentioned it? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I hate going down these rat holes. Well, um, we don't when, when, have to answer, unfortunately. Hey, we are we are really trying to set a precedent here for at least fifty percent correct. That's true. That I, I think we blew that one. So through the rest of the show, we will increase our by being correct. Another, well, we'll attempt to. I'm not none, sure. None of us are. I'm. I know nothing about engines. Yeah. I know I turn them on, and I know that I push the throttle thrust levers up. Well, that's clear and, from what you just said. So, uh, no, I'm just kidding. But bam, no, one wow. shot. What, what happens if I see hit you guys? This have a good day. Ooh, that actually worked. <laughs> nice one. I just oh, hit the look, R on my keyboard. What a shame. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. Let me push some more keys on my keyboard here. Johnny, how much more coffee? No, thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea 
and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right. The Java Jive is playing in the background as we talk about the coffee fund. You, too, can become part of the coffee fund cadre and listen to the barbecue baked beans dissertations, uh, Captain Nick's wonderful uh, lectures about all kinds of interesting aviation-related stuff. And uh, me? Yeah, you don't get really much from me. But that's what you expect from me, I guess. Uh, if you want to become part of the Coffee Fun Cadre, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee, where you can learn about how to support the show financially. Since the last episode, we've had a couple of folks do that. Uh, the classic method, Paul De Silva, Kevin Cole, and Steve Trumbull. And we have some new executive producers on Patreon. We have Ron Perkins, Matt Todd, James DeVoy, Rob Warren, Steve Hurst, and David Amenta. Thank you, all of you, for your generous contributions to the Airline Pilot Guy show and the Coffee Fund. So, again, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. Thanks. Did you mention Paul De Silva? I did. I met him yes, last night. Oh, that's right. You did. And how is it that you met Paul De Silva? Captain Nick. Well, I was, uh, you know, grumpily climbing uh, out of my airplane and walking through the terminal after being much delayed um, and having had a medical um, emergency to deal with as well, um, which led me to understand that when you arrive at New York with a medical problem, apparently um, it's dealt with by the New York police who say that your aircraft is now a crime scene and no one can leave until the medics arrive. So I'm going, well, what? There's no medics there. <laughs> but I keep the in a delayed airplane. I had to keep all the passengers on until the medics had finally pushed up. Anyway, that by the by. So I was a bit grumpy. And this lovely looking chap in a yellow uh, uh, sort of engineer's jacket walked up and said, uh, Hi, uh, you, uh, Captain Nick. And I went, Yes. And it was <laughs> what did I do wrong? <laughs> exactly right. And, Who wants uh, to know? <laughs> he was uh, he was uh, working. He's he's an engineer at uh, Newark. He was been working uh, uh, and uh, took a little bit of moment off to come and uh, find me as I got off the airplane. We walked through the terminal together, had a quick chat. Sadly, my crew were tired and grumpy on the bus and wanting to get to the hotel, so I couldn't hang around and chat for very long. But it was pleasure seeing you uh paul he's had some great or has some great ideas for plain tales which he's uh, now emailed me so i'm going to take a close look at those and it was just wonderful to bump into you uh thanks paul i did uh, take a picture which perhaps we can put in the show notes all right yeah send it to me and i'll uh i think maybe you already have i'll try to remember to put that in the show notes and uh, i believe he works in the engine shop there right at newark we didn't get that far i'm pretty uh, sure yeah, yeah. We've, in fact. Paul, <laughs> help us with this stupid question that we had about uh, N1 and, you know, percentage of power and all that kind of stuff. Maybe he should know something about that. You'd hope so. Yeah. Um, all right. Very good. It's always good to see the uh, members of, the, of our community out there. Oh, absolutely, yes. All right. Let's move on with the news. Stand by for news.
Well, we start with uh, not great news. Uh, this happened in Iran on the 18th of February. Uh, an Iran Asaman Airlines Avion de Transport Regional, uh, an ATR, that's better for me to say, 72, registration Echo Papa Alpha Tango Sierra, performing flight 3704 from Tehran to Yasuj. Um, with 60 passengers and six crew disappeared from radar near the Dina Mountain at or Dana Mountain at about 9:30 local time in the morning. The aircraft was found on February 20th, 2018 at position, well, I'm not going to give you the lat long, at an elevation of approximately 4,000 meters, which is about 13,120 feet. There were no survivors. Emergency services reported fog and snowfall in the crash area. Uh, hampering rescue efforts and made it impossible to land helicopters at the crash site. Uh, let's see, on the 21st of February, rescue and recovery personnel reached the crash site and the first bodies had been recovered. The uh, airline confirmed the aircraft was um, built in 2000 and then they said, oh, wait, no, that's not right. 1993 was when the airplane was built. Uh, crashed in southern Iran due to atmospheric conditions while en route to Yasuj with 60 passengers and six crews, or six crew. Uh, the aircraft had departed. Well, we already talked about that. Um, rescue forces are being dispatched on site. The airline subsequently reported no survivors were found at the crash site. The airline added that the captain involved in the accident flight was experienced, stating he had experienced the failure of a number two engine on his aircraft and had been able to safely land the aircraft at this uh, Yasuj airport in 2014. Um, so uh, later on in this article from the Aviation Herald, there is a, uh, some pictures and some atmospheric um, METAR information, some pictures from Google Earth, the uh, terrain, very, very high terrain, uh, where the uh, flight path uh, took place. And then it also has some approach uh, charts, uh, in route charts and approach plates or charts uh, indicating the extremely high terrain and the fact that you had to follow certain procedures uh, when you're coming in for a landing on the instrument approach. And I think alluding to the fact that perhaps uh, this may have been pilot error, that they may have descended below the uh, proper minimum altitude before they should have. And it, it looks like the, that some of the people here are indicating that it may be one of those uh, controlled flight into terrain kind of a episodes or incidents, but, uh, I'm not sure. What do you guys think? Have you seen this? Yeah. And <clears throat> excuse me. I read the, uh, I read the report as well. And I think it's a sea fit as well. Um, the cloud height, if I remember correctly, when I was looking at the weather was about overcast 9,000 feet. And so the, uh, cl clearly the, the clouds were obscuring the, the cumulo granite. Um, I don't know beyond that. I don't know whether they were, you know, had misread the approach procedure, whether there was a problem with their uh, technique in, in flying the approach or whether there was a problem with the actual um, navigational facility. So there's a lot of unknowns here, but clearly it's a C-fit. Well, 
it, yeah, it has all the signs of that. Uh, we yeah. don't know for sure. There may have been some kind of an emergency situation going on that prevented them from, you know, staying at the proper altitude. You know, we don't know for sure yet, but I think they have recovered. Uh, I'll have to relook back at the uh, article, uh, but I think they have recovered the uh, the black boxes, and uh, so hopefully we'll get some information uh, regarding the actual aircraft performance. That is pretty unforgiving terrain uh, in that area, isn't it? So if they were to lose an engine, they might very well not be able to uh, maintain uh, separation from that high ground. Right. As uh, Liz likes to say, or somebody said, cumula granite. Or no, Dana, you're the one that just said it. Yes. I knew I just heard that from somewhere. Yes. Uh, Anything else you want to say regarding this accident? No, I think we need a little bit more information don't we but yep. uh geez it looks uh, really unfortunate. a pretty horrible place to uh go down uh yep. it'll take them some time to uh, get assistance to i guess some of the uh, witnesses in the area said that they heard an airplane you know flying kind of low and i don't know why or how somebody uh could uh have uh, surmised that they were looking for an open field to land in but uh <laughs> They uh, said that they heard a big, uh, a big explosion, and uh, yeah, the the results were not good, not good at all. Yeah, pretty sad situation. Hate to comment a whole lot on it until yeah. we have more facts. I think. All right. Well, then let's move on to B in the news folder. We have an update on the incident that we talked about on a recent episode regarding the Southwest Airlines jet at. LAX, Los Angeles International, and a uh, news report. Uh, apparently, the reporter not fully up to speed on aviation lingo and understanding of uh, how things work in aviation. And we were having some fun with that. Uh, re- you'll remember that um, a man broke through a perimeter fence and came out to the airplane and went into the wheel well and grabbed a fire extinguisher, she said. Or he said, I don't remember if uh, it was a male or female, it doesn't matter. Um, And uh, then there was some kind of an alarm that went off and we were all kind of scratching our heads thinking, none of this really makes a lot of sense. But I think that you'll, it'll clarify a bit here when we play this audio. Southwest 2494, Arnhem Delray, Runway 24 left, quick to go. Arnhem Delray, 24 left, quick to go, Southwest 2494. There's a, there's, a, there's a guy jumping on the airplane here, 2494. We're holding, we're holding short. Southwest 2494, Roger. Cancel takeoff, clear. Full position. All right, there's a guy. I think you don't know what he's doing. He's climbing on the wheel well or something. Okay, city ops, I'll send a star. Star, city ops, 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 city Get somebody out there for yourself at 2494. Okay. 
Press up to uh, 4293. I'm sorry. Say that frequency again. Press up to 4293. Press 4293. 1, 2, 5.2. 2, 5, 2. We'll give him another call. What do you think? We set our number one engine down. We're getting the APU going. Okay. Sir, 3 Compass 6083. Compass 6087, five runway heading, maintain 2000. I don't know how to 2000. Compass 6078. Hey, he just took off. He's running to the right of the aircraft. He's running northbound across the field right now. Please, 3, are you still up? He's running toward 2-4 right. Man that was climbing on an airplane that is on in position on runway 2 for left. He's running to the north. Uh, he's they said running northbound now. Yeah, he's a BMUS running towards two four left. And he's running uh east he's running east northeastbound across two four left. He doesn't have a shirt on. Okay, they said he's running eastbound across runway two four left. Thanks. Yeah, we we can see him. He's all the way he's almost to the fence now on the far side of the field. We can see him through the light. They should be able to see him running. Okay, on 90, you have him in sight? He's almost to the wall. On the north side? Uh, on the north of 24 right? Yeah, he's on the north side of 24 right. He's running towards the wall. Compass 6078, contact SoCal 125.2. 1528. Tell me that ball name. Uh, you got another 200 feet there. You should see him on the right. I got him. I believe three. He's where that uh, ops vehicle is with the or the cops car there on the north side of the airport. It looks like he's trying to hop the fence. They got him. Hey, they got him. Hey, and for 24, 24.94, we need to go back to gate get this air inspected. We had a light go off in the real well too. Yeah, two four right. It's north. He's just along the fence there, uh, south of Lincoln. South 24.94. Okay, whatever you want to do. Do you want to exit the runway now? Yeah, we want to go back to the gate. Uh, Okay, stop at 2494, thanks. Turn left there at Echo 7, contact ground point 65. Left turn at Echo 7 at ground uh, 2494, thanks. Sir, CDFC, are you just confirming both runways are closed, correct? Okay, we'll show them both closed. CDFC, correct. I'm still waiting for the uh, Southwest that went around to ask again. What was that frequency again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One, two, five. That just goes to show you when everything is just going along hunky-dory and the weather is nice and everything else and all of a sudden something like crazy like this could happen it really kind of catches you off guard uh, at least when you're in like low visibility conditions or uh, severe weather you're kind of you know have that in the back of your mind that you're you could possibly need to uh, perform a go around but uh, let's see if i can do this here you can always, you can always go around, always go around. I hope so but there are times like this when you're not even really thinking about a go around and it just, uh, it does startle you, you know, like what, what go around? What, what was that frequency again? So, uh, I can understand the confusion. Um, but, uh, so this does now make things a little bit more clear and I can kind of understand what the journalist was trying to say when uh, they were writing the words in that article. Um, uh, the, item that somebody had surmised i believe it was larry geezer in tulsa uh in the wheel well of the um, southwest uh, jet was most likely the apu fire uh handle or uh i think that's what we call it and um so and then that would make sense that they would get a light so all those guesses i think uh, are proving to be true that uh i guess the guy when they started 
started up their APU, Nick, uh, they, the guy out there decided, I don't want the APU running. I'm going to shut it down. (laughs) 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 At least the crew, uh, thought enough to, uh, shut down the number one engine thinking that, you know, this, there's an idiot out there that has no clue what he's doing. And I don't want to suck him into the intake of the number one. I guess he must've been. I got the impression that that he'd gone under the aircraft, uh, before they actually shut down the engine trying to start the APU. So I'm wondering yeah. how they managed to get the APU going after the guy had fired the APU extinguisher. I don't know. Maybe they tried to start it up and then the guy pulled it. I, I don't know what the yeah. sequence was. Yeah, There's really no indication whether they ever got the APU started and if he had actually pulled the fire handle yeah. in, in, the, in on the outside of the aircraft, they wouldn't be able to do that. It's always interesting to hear the communications going on there and uh, you could hear it look, sounds like both of the pilots in the Southwest jet were trying to say something on the on the comm frequency like there's a guy there's a guy out here <laughs> running around <laughs> so what yeah um, and uh, I, I thought it was a music use of terms when they say the guy's taken off <laughs> so I so that's uh, that's, that's an American phrase I think you know it's like when you somebody takes off it's like you know they 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 leave quickly yeah. Um, but, but uh, uh, in the in the context of him running around on the runway, I thought it was quite, <laughs> yeah. quite amusing. Roger, well, I didn't clear you for takeoff. What are you <laughs> doing? Uh, anyway, so um, the shirtless take take off at that. Yeah, he did take off. You know what is this about guys out there that are uh, behaving badly, taking their shirts off? I don't know. Maybe they're trying to flex their muscle. Seems to be a common thread. Uh, beware the the man who takes his shirt off, uh, you, you might want to stay away. Might just want to stay away. All right. Uh, let's might see. Might we say they're knocking futs? Pardon? Might we say they're knocking futs? Okay. Family we might show. say that. You might say that. Um, let's see. C in the news folder. Incident Southwest B737 at Salt Lake City on February 26th. That was just a few days ago. Engine shut down in flight. Now, I was reading a non-aviation-related news site that said that the engine shut down because it was on fire. Well, no. It specifically says in the Aviation Herald that there was no engine fire indication, but that the engine was um, in, in uh, what's the word I'm looking for, was encountering a compressor stall or a series of compressor stalls. And in fact... There is a YouTube video of somebody under the flight path as this thing was climbing out of Salt Lake City, uh, grabbed the uh, cell phone, hit the video record button, and uh, we'll play a little bit of audio for you. You can hear what he and what caused this man to run out of the building that he was in and to start recording. I was hoping there was going to be some more there, but, uh, kind of hard to hear, but, uh, almost sounds like gunshots, um, in the, in the background, but, uh, look at the video, it'll be in the show notes and then you'll see the, uh, the flames, uh, coming out the back of the engine. And I can see why some people might think, oh, it's an engine fire, but actually it was just the disruption of airflow and, uh, the resultant 
compressor stalls. And uh, the crew did a fine job of uh, going out, holding a bit, uh, analyzing the situation, and then coming back and landing safely at Salt Lake City. Yeah, I don't think people realize uh, how easy uh, and relatively common it is compared with a lot of engine problems that a uh, compressor stall uh, is uh, and how simple it is for a pilot and how many of us have probably had them in our careers, how simple it is to clear. Usually just throttling back uh, the engine is sufficient to, to clear it and certainly shutting it down will clear it. And if there's no damage done, uh, you can... Uh, Probably not advisable if you don't have to, but uh, you can relight the engine and it should uh, be fine. If it's caused by uh, blade damage or something which is disrupting the airflow, then of course that's not advisable. But if you suspect there's no damage done uh, and uh, it was uh, perhaps due to a uh, misbalanced fuel um, um, or other problem that uh, the engine might have encountered, then uh, there's usually no reason if you would need to to get it going again. But it certainly needs checking out once you've landed, that's for sure. Well, and, and that's, uh, you mentioned if if the engine is uh, is uh, you know not damaged or fan blades are not damaged, in the flight deck, the only way that you're really going to know um, how or what is going on with the engine is your engine instruments. So, for example, if you have a good N1 and N2, that means that the, the, the fan blades are spinning out there. Uh, another way that you'd know is if the, any vibration, noise, um, that's how you could tell uh, what type of damage or if you have any damage to the engine. Uh, obviously, a fire warning would be a uh, perfect example that you know that you have something massive going on with that engine, obviously with a fire. But in that case, uh, they did not get a fire warning because it was indeed not a fire in the engine. It was just a you know, compressor stall. So. Just to, to, to uh, expand upon what Nick said, that's how we would in the flight deck know whether uh, there was damage to the engine or not. And that's how we evaluate it. And Liz is asking about, you know, what's the difference between a compressor stall and a flame out? And they're not the same thing. A flame out is when the engine stops operating, it just flames out. Uh, the compressor stall, the engine is usually going to continue to operate and it might still be stalling and banging. Uh, and then, as Nick mentioned, the uh, First uh, thing that you would do as a pilot is, you know, retard the thrust on the uh, affected engine to see if you can reduce the amount of airflow required. And that usually will stop the engine from doing the compressor stalling, uh, just reducing the power. And then if necessary, you can always shut it down yourself, but it's, it's not the same as a flame out. And uh, also, I, I think I mentioned this in the past that it was not uncommon on the 727, especially that middle engine, for us to uh, have uh, compressor stalls. Uh, and that was just because of the interruption of the flow of air through that S duct to, uh, you know, getting getting to the engine. Sometimes uh, if you were in a, in a uh, moderate to high crosswind, you had to be very careful uh, advancing the throttle on the number two engine because uh, you did not want for that engine to de to demand too much until there was a good flow of air going to the uh, the front of it. Yeah, in, in the military, we used to get these quite often, um, and often because of the uh, the amount of maneuvering you're doing, you can, it's quite easy to disrupt the airflow into the intake, which could cause a uh, stall. And uh, it was quite common 
to get a few bangs, uh, pull the throttle back, uh, clear the stall, uh, uh, re-advance the throttle again. If it's fine, you just carry on fighting. You know, you go through a, a combat, uh, you might have one engine that was a bit prone, you might uh, clear two or three stalls um, during a, you know, a combat, but a combat, <laughs> they carry on. <laughs> yeah. And usually it doesn't do any damage if it's just a disruption of airflow. Now, if it's, as you mentioned, Nick, uh, one of those situations where the, the fan blade itself has deformed or come apart or something like that, then you are dealing with a much more serious problem. Absolutely. Well, and, 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 you know, if you take just in, in the context of the words that we're using, compressor, stall, mm-hmm. put that into the context of the aviation world. When we're talking about an aircraft stalling, that just means loss of airflow and does not, you know, it's not detrimental. You just reestablish the airflow to the aircraft. You know, rephrase that, usually not detrimental. They can be in certain circumstances, but um, certainly if you reestablish airflow, then you, you know, you recover from the stall. So that's why compressor stall uh, versus an engine flame out, flame out is, you know, nothing's, nothing's happened. The prop has stopped spinning. So right. that's uh, one way to think of it. That, very good. Uh, and you're perfectly right. Um, what do we do if we stall a wing? Well, we, you know, we reduce the angle of attack and then the air is flowing over the wing in a laminar fashion. And the same thing we do with the, you know, by pulling the power back, usually that's restoring that laminar flow to the uh, compressor blades and, and uh, you know, getting it out of a critical angle of attack. Those are little individual blades. Yep. All right. Um, this was an interesting one. Uh, item D panic as bag bursts into flames on plane. And there's a photo here and I can understand why <laughs> there might be a little panic. Uh, quite a lot of flames are, are coming from this bag in an overhead bin. It says terrified passengers were forced to evacuate a plane after a passenger's bag in the overhead compartment suddenly burst into flames. And they were uh, boarding Sunday's China Southern Airlines flight from Guangzhou to Shanghai when smoke began to fill the cabin. A video taken on board showed a bag on fire on fire in the overhead compartment. And the uh, show notes will have the video if you want to watch it. It's on YouTube. Uh, passengers and cabin crew could be seen trying to put out the flames with bottles of water and juice. <laughs> I'm not sure why you'd want to use juice, but... If you don't have anything else, I guess throw some juice on it. Eventually, fire crews and security came on board and managed to put out the blaze. The fire did not cause further damage to the plane, the airline said. The owner of the bag was taken off the plane to talk to police. The cause of the fire appeared to be a power bank yet again. How many times are we hearing about these um, issues with uh, things catching on fire and there are the, the actual external batteries, the power banks that are the culprit? Uh, yeah, the trouble is they're very easy to get hold of, and uh, they're inexpensive. And uh, the good ones, with the expensive ones, uh, are the ones with all the uh, built-in safety factors. Whereas the the inexpensive ones that are mass-produced, uh, you know, perhaps from the Far East, uh, they're much less likely to be safe. Much more likely to have this problem. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that they weren't in flight and it didn't get out of control. Uh, so it looks like everybody uh, were everybody was able to get off the airplane safely. Yeah, but it's a bit like carrying a little um, firebomb in your bag, isn't it? I mean, look at yeah. the size of those flames. And I, I think they, they were just trying to throw 
uh, coolant on it, as as you're correctly supposed to do. We discussed that, uh, you know, douse it in water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think the next available liquid to hand was orange juice. <laughs> yeah, well, that'll work. <laughs> yeah, that'll do. As long as it's not a flammable liquid, I guess. It will smell good. nice at least. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's it a nice be. orange, burnt orange smell. Orange. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And then finally in the news bag, we have this. Um, a Ryanair flight uh, 737, of course, 800. Uh, let's see. Registration Echo India, Echo Kilo India, performing flight 8421 from Edinburgh, uh, Scotland to... Uh, let's see. Fuerteventura. Yes. On the uh, 10th of February. You want to hear that again? Fuerteventura. There we go. Um, they were climbing out of uh, the Origin Airport and they were en route at flight level 370. So they were not climbing out of the Origin Airport. Scratch that. They were en route at flight level 370, nearing the top of descent towards the Canary Islands when the crew requested to descend to flight level 130. Air traffic control cleared the flight to descend to flight level 130. However, when the aircraft descended through flight level 364, the controller instructed the aircraft to stop the descent at flight level 360. So 400 feet above that altitude, they were asked to go ahead and stop at 36. The aircraft descended below flight level 360 while the crew adjusted the autopilot. The crew disconnected the autopilot and climbed the aircraft to flight level 360 manually. A passenger fell as a result of the maneuver and broke a leg. The aircraft continued to... Fuerteventura. And landed about 20 minutes later. Now, the reason why I put this in here, you know, no big deal, right? Um, I mean, it's a big deal for the guy that broke his leg. But the I, the point I wanted to make here is that sometimes, again, that startle factor, you know, you're descending, you're thinking you're, you're, thinking you're going to descend all the way to 13,000 feet, and then all of a sudden ATC comes on and says, um, you know, for whatever reason, maybe there was some traffic that the controller forgot about or whatever, and uh, go ahead and level off at 360. And that happens, you know, it's not an uncommon thing for us to get an amended clearance like that. And the the point that I want to make here is that it's not necessary to do a Yahoo maneuver and pull a lot of G's if you happen to overshoot. So, you know, you're 400 feet above. I don't know. You're probably coming down at 1,000, 2,000 feet per minute. And uh, somebody tells you to stop at 36. You start doing something with your autopilot control panel, your auto flight system. Maybe it's not doing exactly what you were expecting it to do, or perhaps it's not doing it as quickly as you're hoping it will. And you think for whatever reason that if you actually get below 36, you're going to crash into something, which is most likely not the case. And uh, just, you know, let it go below 36 and just nice and calmly and smoothly bring it back to the altitude that they've requested. I mean, I think that if it's something very, very urgent, you can sense that in the controller's voice and uh, you'll most likely have some other clues that something terrible is about to happen. Like you'll have your TCAS system probably blaring, uh, telling you to adjust your rate of climb, et cetera. So I guess, I mean, that was the only point that I was going to try to make with this news uh, article regarding no, this I think that's incident. A, that's a great point, Jeff. And and you make the point about flying your aircraft in a controlled and smooth manner, and you pride yourself in your ability to do that. These blokes had only descended 600 feet, and they got the re- reclearance. So I'm just wondering how steep a descent they had initiated. 
if I was setting off, um, I would be progressively increasing my rate of descent because, uh, you know, you're not going to just pull open descent or whatever the equivalent is in uh, a 737 and let the airplane stick the nose down because often it will build up quite a high rate of descent. I'll sort of dial in 500 feet a minute and then let the airplane stabilize at that, which would be a nice smooth transition in. Then I might wind up to 1,000 feet a minute and just gently increase it so that the aircraft does a nice controlled entry to the descent. If you've only gone down 600 feet, you won't have very many degrees nose down. You won't have to do much to arrest that. So I'm just wondering what kind of a, a descent they initiated. Well, you know, here's, here's the thing. That's a very senior uh, experienced pilots talking here, and, and I have to say that ACME, uh, one of the things that they taught, um, and Jeff, you can you can probably relate to this, is w- we were taught to use VNAV. So when they teach you to use VNAV and not do the smooth controlled descent, especially in aircraft, I can't speak for some three. I know they have VNAV, obviously, and LNAV. Uh, but I don't know how its entry will be if you're in a VNAV mode and you select to go down to 13,000 feet. I don't know, uh, flight level 130, I don't know how the autopilot's going to calculate that out. So in our aircraft, I know if we get that type of clearance and I hit VNAV, the airplane immediately rolls over to about 2,500 to 3,000 foot per minute and will get itself established first, and then it'll go to computer lockout manual power. So in other words, then now we can adjust our descent rate via the auto throttle, you know, auto throttles kind of lock themselves out and they can use power to control your descent rate. So our initial in- entry using VNAV on the Mad Dog will be a pretty high entry rate. It will just nose the airplane over and come on down. However, um, technique-wise, that's not the way I would do it. I, you know, I, I, I get the airplane going down and, and, and slow it, you know, slow its descent rate pretty quickly down to, you know, thousand foot to 1500 feet per minute. And the autopilot tends to, if in this case it would dip down and probably would not react very quickly. And I would tend to probably uh, click the autopilot off myself and go ahead and pull the nose back up to, to flight level three, six, zero. But I don't know. I mean, we don't know how fast or how hard they pull, but obviously they pull pretty hard, but all it takes is one G and you're, you're doubling doubling the person's weight so you don't you know if you're not expecting that then you know it's very easy for the person to be startled and, and possibly hurt themselves and you know they may have had you know we don't know about the passenger themselves maybe they have you know an older person that has osteoarthritis that could very easily have a bone broken i mean so there are a lot of factors here that that i don't think are really covered uh, in detail other than the fact that we as professional airline pilots we tend to try to make the the, the flight uh, as smooth as possible, and that's what both you guys are talking about is, you know, roll the airplane over, get a nice descent rate going so the airplane just doesn't pitch over and start a high-rate descent. Well, a couple things. Um, you're, you're right in the airplane that uh, we fly, Dana, that if the calculated descent path or descent point has been uh, passed, uh, when you actually get a clearance to descend and you roll that new altitude in the uh, altitude window, um, it will actually pretty aggressively nose down and pick up a very high rate of descent. Now, and, and this might be why in this case, when, you know, in the article it says that the crew requested to descend to 13. So they may have been looking 
at the computer system's calculation of the descent point and realize that they were either getting very close to it or perhaps even past it. And if they did initiate a VNAV or vertical navigation descent, perhaps the uh, computer was flying through the autoflight, the autoflight system was trying to re-establish that path that it had uh, calculated. Now, experienced pilots you know, those of us that are here on the panel know that if that's the situation, we're aware of it, and then we will not let the airplane do that. We'll go into some other kind of a mode that will give us a nice, easy, gradual descent and not uh, nose down. Of course, we don't really know. Uh, it doesn't say in the article here how quickly that descent started. My only point was, even if that happened, as Captain Nick pointed out, uh, it's only descended 600 feet by this point. I mean, you can even if it was heading down toward two, three, four thousand feet per minute, it has not reached that point yet because it's only descended 600 feet. But even if it were three, four thousand feet per minute, let the airplane go through that altitude that they've amended and and climb gradually back up to it. Just be cognizant, I guess, I, the point I'm trying to make is cognizant of the fact that there are people in the back of your airplane standing up, especially those in the in the tail of the uh, airplane where you're going to get the greatest effect of uh, a reversal. And uh, I guess that that was my point. Well, and, and you're right. I mean, in, in Nico, well, Nico responded, Said the VNAV on the 737 aims for 1,000 feet per minute. If you're below calculated path or, or, or on, on that, path, mm-hmm. on path. So, but if you're um, over the path or past the path, it's, then it's, it's, so in other words, you know, you see that, those. you know, see that path indicator at the bottom of the case, <laughs> like, like you're looking at a glide slope and you see that the glide slope is down at the bottom of the case. That means you're way above it. And so if the computer thinks you're way above that calculated descent path, it's going to go, Whoa, I better get down to that thing. And that's when Dana and I go, uh, don't think so. And we go into some other kind of mode. And for me, it's always vertical speed because then well, I can control Well, another it. important point, Jeff, here is, is that air traffic control, all right, you know, we, we've been drilled in, in the, you know, I don't know about over you know, with you, Nick, and, but I, I know that we've been drilled altitude, you know, altitude deviations, don't do them, don't do them, don't do them, try to. Uh, you know, do everything you do, make sure you're verified, don't, you know, deviate from the altitude. So we're, we're always constantly thinking, okay, that's a hard altitude, we got to be there, that's, so, but the air traffic controller with 400 feet to go gave them the new altitude. It's pretty hard to expect a turbojet aircraft to be able to, within 400 feet, if it's, you know, coming down at a good pace, to be able to level off and not go below the, you know, in this case, it's a, we're going from 370 to they wanted you to stop at 360. And so we're at 364 is when they give give you the clearance. While well, you're coming down probably 1,000, 1,500 feet per minute, it's going to take a little bit for the airplane to come back up and level off without doing a, a massive uh, you know, pull-up on the aircraft. So I agree with you, Jeff. It would be normal for the in, – in air traffic control knows this because they gave you the clearance late is that you're going to dip down below the 360, that you don't need to – 400 feet, I get a level off and grab onto the airplane and pull and yank the nose of the airplane up so you don't go below the 360. Right. It's pretty much understood at that point by ATC. I gave him the late clearance. There's no way he's going to be at 360. It might be – Three five six or three five eight. By the time he recovers and gets back up to three six zero, so and a lot of I the times the air traffic control will say, "I know I realize this is a late clearance. You know, just you know, you can take your, you can go through it and then you know get back up to it. You know, so it's probably some kind of a traffic conflict that's maybe thirty to fifty miles ahead or something. You know, something way ahead, and the controller didn't 
think about it when they gave you that initial clearance. And uh, so, you know, it's not something that you have to just overreact to, I guess, is the point that I was trying to make. So I think we all agree. And uh, that's always a good thing when we all agree on the APG. So now it's time for the best part of the show, which of course is your feedback. Captain, incoming message. Okie doke. Let's start off with this one. This uh, we received um, quite a while back. I'm trying to find the date. Oh, a little after uh, the beginning of the year, January 7th. This was from Captain Troy. And he uh, gives us a link to an article, uh, a very serious article, I'm sure, about uh, our sister airline, an airline very, very similar to Del- uh, to, to Acme. Uh, it's named Delta. Uh, they're adding a button that lets the pilot know you want the plane to go faster. So there's a picture here of the overhead panel where you can see the, uh, what do they call that, the passenger service unit? With the uh, air vents and the uh, lighting and the button that you push for uh, the uh, uh, flight attendant. And uh, there's a button right next to the light button that says faster. <laughs> and so uh, with shrinking legroom and disappearing amenities, flying is becoming more and more of an uncomfortable grind. But one airline is doing its part to reverse that trend and make air travel more flyer friendly. Delta is adding a button to every seat that lets the pilot know that you want the plane to go faster. Finally, an airline that truly understands the customer experience. And it goes on. Of course, it's satire. I I wish they put it out the 1st of April. (laughs) Yeah, they should have. You're right. Maybe I think that might be in reference to the flight attendants. Pardon me? I'm making a joke out of it. Oh, I, I think it would be in reference to the flight attendants moving a little bit faster to get things. Oh, and get their, uh, get their drinks faster. <laughs> yeah. Where's my drinks? Faster. faster. Yeah, that'll work. That'll work. <laughs> um, and that, you know, that brings up the, uh, I, I know this is meant as satire, but I think a lot of people, you know, so let's say we're running late and uh, in my PA, I might say, we're going to, you know, go as fast as we can to make up as much time as we can. And then I think a lot of the passengers will go, well, why weren't you going as fast as you could go to begin with? And why would we not go as fast as we possibly could all the time, Dana? Fuel savings, economy. Ah, okay. It's, it, I, I, would, I would say that, uh, you know, that it's uh, economical and, and, you know, you have a much longer cruise range if you are not burning uh, as much gas trying to go as fast as you can. So just like if you're on the highway driving your vehicle, you know, if the speed limit says 65, most people will probably do 65 to 75. Uh, but if you notice your gas gauge, if you start going above that, your, your range you, in, in a lot of these new cars have this digital ability that will show you your, your cruise range and based on how many gallons you have and how fast you're going. But if, if you look at your uh, total uh, range, then it, it would go down substantially because, well, in an aircraft, we're fighting friction. Um, and it doesn't necessarily uh, make a lot of sense to go ahead and, and go fast all the time. Plus, not only that, uh, the schedule reliability. So, uh, you know, airlines will go ahead and put out a uh, planned schedule time based on the average of a stage length between two cities. So what does that mean? That means between those two cities, have an average over a, a certain amount of time of how, how long 
each flight takes and, and based on the, you know, in economic value. So, uh, you know, on a scale of zero to hundred, which we used to put 100% um, in our econ, which was go as fast as we could go all the time way back in the day. Now we'll put like 48 to 50% because it balances uh, flight time versus um, the economy of the aircraft to make, to give it the best cruise range for the best speed for the best configuration, which be including weight um, and current weather conditions. So we do have the ability to speed it up sometimes, um, but not all the time. Uh, even if we fly fast, does it really make that much of a difference? We're just burning a lot more uh, jet fuel. Yeah. And the other thing is that uh, air traffic control, it kind of expects you to be flying a certain speed. And if you fly significantly faster than what they were expecting you to, uh, that causes a little issue with uh, spacing of other aircraft out there and, you know, trying to get you around them and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, there, there are some things that it does impact. And so we can't just unilaterally decide, you know what, we're going to go ahead and fly this speed instead without notifying air traffic control. We have to tell them that we're going to be flying a little bit faster than we had initially planned. Yeah, and that's that's per the uh, FAA flight plan. You know, every every flight aircraft that flies in the uh, instrument uh, via IFR instrument flight rules, every one of them has a, a speed that's associated with it. And I forget the number. Is it twenty knots? Ten knots, and or it's a percentage, like within five percent of the true airspeed that you told them you were going to be flying. And you know, we always get our our whiz wheels out and uh, make all those calculations. Not, <laughs> not, it's just know, easier it's, to tell them you're going to be, you know, I know we filed for seven, six mock and we're going to be flying at seven, nine or eight or whatever. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier pet peeves. That's mm-hmm. one of my biggest pet peeves. The aircraft control will tell you to slow down. And next thing you know, they clear you direct to a point further yeah. down, down line. It's Ooh, like, pet peeves. <laughs> that that might that might be one for uh, our, our our colleagues and friends over at opposing bases to 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 notch on and to give us an answer on. But uh, why why do you tell us to slow down? And then next thing you know, you're cutting a corner and saying it's direct, <laughs> and, and it defeats the whole purpose of slowing down. We so. always look at each other in the cockpit and go, "What?" Like what? roll our eyes. Okay, wait. You wanted me to speed up, and now you're giving me a vector away or vice versa. You know, you slow us down, but now you're giving me a direct. And uh, yeah. That would be a good one to uh That's a good one so G in the, yeah. in our H. Uh Nick, do you have any uh, input regarding uh flying faster and, and parking the, spots. Parking spots. Oh, that's another great one. Yeah, we're yeah. going into these big hub cities. If you get there too early, you often have to wait for your stand to come free. So there's no much point arriving early. Any other one? Uh, we talked about going to Port Harcourt on the last show, mm-hmm. uh, which was an African airfield. We used to sometimes uh Regularly, well, I regularly had a service into. I used to sometimes fly it um, because of the uh, departure time. The fact that it was a captain's only landing in daylight, uh, we used to um, have to bring the speed right back. Often flying at uh, min drag speed, um, you know, the minimum safe speeds to try and extend the flight time so that we wouldn't land before dawn. Uh, and um, of course, we're trying to avoid any direct, so there'd be a traffic going. Uh, the Frenchman, oh, you are clear to Montilima. And uh, you go, oh, negative, thank you. We'll stick to the flight plan. Uh, pardon? <laughs> uh, what? Why? What? You don't want to direct? <laughs> no, no, thank you. Not tonight. 
what is the matter with you? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we used to create a lot of confusion for the air traffickers when we used to continually refu- refuse directs to try and keep the flight time uh, to the required landing time. There you go. Another, you know, it's, it's interesting. To eat your bonbons. <laughs> I beg your pardon? <laughs> you just want more time to eat your bonbons. Uh, yeah, whatever a bonbon is. Yeah, sure. I was going to think, I was thinking to myself, he probably doesn't know what a bonbon is. It's a lovely <laughs> chocolate, uh, covered, uh, vanilla ice cream Eclair treat. Thing, yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, what else was I going to say there? You threw me off with the bonbons. Yeah. <laughs> Title of the show, right there. Excellent. It's an excellent point. Excellent point because you know, going in and out of hub, hub and spokes. That's probably one of the things I should have mentioned. But excellent point, Nick. Um, is is gate constraints and and uh, you know, you have so many aircraft coming in and out of a hub, and there's only so many gates. So if you arrive too early, then you sit out there, and people want you know, well, we're here, and why yep. why are we sitting out here? And it becomes a becomes a and people get really antsy they're on the ground they won't get off the airplane it's it's human nature it's it's just one of those odd things if you're up there holding for a half an hour uh, and then you land and you go right to your gate people are usually even if you're running a bit late are are more satisfied than if you end up landing and arrive on the ramp 30 minutes before your scheduled arrival time and then you just sit there on the ramp waiting for your gate to clear that just frustrates people I guess just so close, but yet so far away, right? Yep. I always try and uh, show them which aircraft's blocking the parking position. And so at least a, they can, unless it's one of ours. In which yeah, case I was going to say, if it's, if, 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 it's, it's a, if it's like Air France <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, these Air France people are impeding yeah, or, our progress. Or that, or that awful airline Delta. I mean, oh, they're off, those they're guys. They're the off. worst. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Moving on. Number two, Alex. Why does the captain sit on the left? Uh, he says, potentially the next two questions are the most basic you've received. Now, we've received much more basic questions. But whilst sitting at the back of another delayed Boeing plane, Airbus, Airbus, my kingdom for an Airbus. Oh, I, I see now. I was thinking to myself, is this Alex the Boeing hater? It is. It's Alex. He even assigned it. Alex the Boeing hater. I sit here Except wondering he about. Spells Boeing wrong. Have you noticed that he puts no, an he in spells it, it correctly. <laughs> B O E I N G. Thank you very much. I sit here wondering about two basic things. Why does the captain sit on the left and not the right? This is the case for. Is this the case for all commercial aircraft? I think helicopter captains sit on the right. Right. They do. Yep. Yes. Correct. Also, carrying on the left and right theme. Why do we always enter an aircraft from the left and fuel on the right? I guess it's influenced by the captain being on the left, right? Right? Left, right? Left. But one of these days, I want to board from the right just for the heck of it. <laughs> Great show from Alex the Boeing hater. Well, Alex the Boeing hater, uh, we have actually covered this. And, and I say we, that's not actually correct. I covered this question about um, sitting on the left and the right uh, back way back in like episode 90 something or other. Uh, so when was when I was doing the show by myself. Uh, so I thought, you know what, we can we can talk about this again because it's been such a long time since we have. 
Um, I'm going to include in the show notes this list of um, possible reasons for why the captain sits on the left and not on the right. And uh, for just a few here, I'll, I'll talk about after World War I, most airplanes had rotary engines with left turning tendencies because it followed the torque of the engine. Therefore, turning left was easier than turning right. And because of this, pilots considered left turns as more a com- more convenient. Well, I'm going to wave the BS flag there. Okay. Yeah. Because those aircraft were single seat. So you sat in the middle. <laughs> There's no left or right on a single seat airplane. Uh-huh. Uh, so that, Good catch. that's BS. Yeah. Okay. There's BS. A lot of these are BS, by the way. Uh, Mm -hmm. Let's see. The second one, since the early days of aviation, the fact that the pilot was sitting on the left, they kept the airplane on the right side along the airway. I'm going to flag BS there. Okay. Because uh, who's to say that because uh, they were sitting on the left, they flew on the right, or they flew on the right, so the captain sat on the left. Chicken and egg, which one came first? Mm -hmm. Well, so what would you say would be the most likely reason for this design, Captain Nick? I've absolutely no idea. Okay. Well, I don't think anyone does. I think it's like one of those things, which which side of the road do you drive on? Well, you just you just make up your mind. You start driving on one side. You know, which side is the senior bloke going to sit on? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, perhaps well, one day an airplane was built and it was slightly <clears> warmer on the left. So the captain said, well, I'm always going to sit in this seat because <laughs> this is warmer. And from there on, everyone started sitting on the left. Well, you know, I think there might be a scientific base to this. And I wish Dr. Steph was here to answer this question. But aren't men predominantly left brain? uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, Left left brain brain. thinkers? Uh, Yeah, left brain thinkers. uh, The the left side of their brain is their predominant part of their brain. That's the most analytical part of the brain. Yep. So, well, men were heavily involved with the de- development of aviation and development of aircraft. So one would think that maybe left-hand uh, hemisphere of their brain was the, the dominant. You were yeah, in the flag, too. The I, don't know. I was just throwing that brain. out there. The left side of your brain controls the right side of your body. And we're, generally speaking, right-handers. So if you're using the throttles in your left hand and the, and the control yoke, as it would have been on these old-fashioned airplanes in your right hand, that would be the more natural. So that's the first officer's side. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, a captain has to fly the aircraft with his left hand, which is not usually his dominant hand, and controls the throttles with his right. So what's that about? I mean, apart from that, those old airplanes with all mechanical flying controls. Oh, I do apologize, Jeff. You guys fly. That's okay. That's kind of airplane. I like my mechanical um, controls. Thank you. <laughs> you probably uh, you probably control though that can old fashioned control yoke better with your dom- dominant strong arm, which is your right hand. So, mm-hmm. in really, you ought to be sitting in the right seat if you're the uh, the primary pilot. Yeah, mm-hmm. the dominant arm would be ten ten to over control. With left hand is nice and smooth on that. that no, I think you, I think you need muscles on those old airplanes, <laughs> not not smoothness. I wouldn't I wouldn't have a clue. I've never taxied in that dog. <laughs> so I'm thinking this is the answer here. One of the last ones listed. Horse mounted right hand handed soldiers wear their sword on their left side. To mount a horse with a sword hanging down your left leg, you need to mount from the left to swing your right leg over. So they naturally mounted their aircraft from the same side. That <laughs> makes perfect sense. It has something to do with horses and swords. Yeah. Mounting. And it must be much easier to stick your sword down the left side of the cockpit because there's not a lot of controls there. If you had a sword and you climbed into the cockpit and you tried to 
put it down the right side, the set of console will get in the way. So <laughs> but it's for all those ex-cavalry pilots. That's it. With their swords. It's got to be the answer. There you go, yeah. Alex. Um, let's see. And then he also asked about the, why we board on the left side and not the right. And I wonder if that has something, isn't there a reason why ships always, um, approach a dock, uh, at a certain side, what do they call it? Starboard port and starboard, uh, port side is obviously the side that they come up to a dock and the starboard side is the opposite side. I'm I'm wondering if that has something to do with why. So port is left, right? I yeah. mean, correct. Um, I'm getting confused now with left and rights and correct. Um, port side is the left side, and so that's the side uh, to which you would, you know, bring the boat into port, and that's where you would load a ship, right, or a boat. So maybe that's why that just carried over into airplanes. I don't know. I, well, just I you're correct. Port, port is left and starboard is right. Right. Well, I still don't understand why you need to bring a ship in on the port side. I guess they decided uh, they had to standardize it. So they okay. decided that um, we'll just make it this side and we're going to call it the port side because that's the way you bring it into a port. I don't know. These are just two difficult questions for us to answer, to ponder. Exactly right. yeah. Um. I also threw this in, he sent us another piece of feedback um, after those uh, uh, initial questions. And he said, uh, what do you notice and observe as a pilot when you're flying as a passenger? This will be a good one for Captain Nick because he's going to be doing that tonight as he heads back to London. Um, he says um, he just read an article that stated the below as the top five in no particular order. Pilots look out for ice accumulation on windows and wings. Uh, Pilots are aware and sensitive to changes or abnormal smells. Not from your fellow passengers, he says. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, Notice any changes in the light angles in the cabin to indicate the plane is changing direction. Uh, We observe and listen to fellow pilot communications with passengers, especially during delays and how it's communicated. Yeah, we do. I think I do. Uh, we observe how smooth the, the landing is and silently judge the pilot flying. He said, I added that bit. And that's true, too. We do, we do uh, you know, judge other people's landings. And then number six, quickly observe where the exits are in case of an emergency. Uh, he said the below is the top five, but actually that's six. Um, but uh, I, th- I think I could agree with all of those things, actually. What, what do you think, Captain Nick? Yeah, and that kind of goes along with yeah. What I tend, I, I I would put number one is um, how good the champagne is, but ah. uh, <laughs> uh, then then I'd probably look at the others. So, yeah, I guess I probably do most of that. Sounds reasonable. Yeah, Dana, you say same thing. Kind of looking for yeah, same thing. I mean, I'm I, I'm a sounds guy, so I'm always listening for you know, configurations and what the engines are doing, making sure they're both operating. So. Um, and I can quite often tell quite quickly, um, based on what I'm hearing with the engines, uh, what we're about to do. So, yeah, that's, uh, I agree with all those. And then I just, uh, I, I listen to, well, do you wonder what Alex finds, um, you know, himself doing when he is a passenger? Oh, well, he told us, he said, number one, how clean or dirty the interior is of the cabin. 
Number two, look at the selection of films and realized I've seen most of them. Number three, wait with dread to see if I will have a peacock or Captain Al elephant, a human <laughs> or something else next to me. Wow, that was kind of rude, I Alex. should call it Captain Al an elephant. <laughs> I that's think so. I mean, rude. that's the way it reads. <laughs> uh, number four, look out the window and think, why, I, why am I not a pilot? I'm in the wrong job. <laughs> Number five, silently judge people who recline their seat as the plane is taking off and judge the pilot if his or her landing is a bit sporty. Uh, number six, always check the plane model. If it's an Airbus, all is great in my world. Embraer, I think, are these planes really built in a jungle? Boeing, I check to see to make or I check to make sure that the wings are attached and the pilots are not too depressed to be flying a plane from the <laughs> 60s. And if I'm in Europe, I think uh, about my life choices and why I'm flying on Ryanair. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Great. Great points, Alex. <laughs> Those are excellent. Yeah. Well, thanks for your uh your feedback and um I think a lot of people share a lot of those, uh, what you're thinking as a passenger. Number one, by the way, how clean or dirty the interior of the cabin is. doesn't matter really to most passengers how clean or dirty the outside of the airplane is, but they really do pay attention to the interior. And that's why airlines uh, very often refit and redo their cabin interiors because they understand that that to passenger is uh, is kind of a... Uh, a benchmark or a uh, an indication uh, as to um, you know whether or not this airplane is going to be safe or not. Well, you know, so here's here's the real deal: how many passengers really see the outside of the aircraft for any amount of time? Most passengers spend the entire flight inside the aircraft, looking inside the airplane and looking around at all the fixtures and the floor and the seat in front of them and the hairline of the person that just reclined their, into their, their personal space, a lack of a hairline in my case. Uh, so, you know, those are what, you know, people spend, you know, anywhere from an hour to 10 hours on the airplane. That's what they're looking at is what's inside the aircraft. And, you know, they, they really can't see what's on the outside. So that's why it would be more important. Yeah. In my opinion. All right. Well, moving on. Thank you, Alex, the Boeing hater, for your feedback and questions. Um, Larry and Andy, in separate pieces of feedback, sent us cartoons, knowing that we probably, as pilots, don't really know how to read, but we can look at cartoons and kind of understand what's going on. Um, the first one is from Larry Gregory in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and it is, um, I don't know what the comic is here. I don't really read them or want or look at them anymore, but uh, it starts off with some strange looking animals. Hey, rat, this is my friend Al. He's an air, airplane pilot. Oh yeah? I have a question. Why do you keep getting on the intercom to tell me about the altitude and wind direction and other things that only you care about? And then the pilot says, because I love the sound of my own voice. And then the mouse looks around the rat. Well, now we know. And then the captain or pilot says, it's all I can do to not sing karaoke. <laughs> it must be you, Jeff. They're talking about that you. That is. They are talking about me, I think. I guess. You. But you know what? I think that people listen to the show probably are also people that are concerned about the altitude and the wind direction and other things. Uh, I think maybe most passengers don't. <laughs> 
Um, I try to think about that when I'm doing my PAs. I'm thinking, really? Is, is that something that they really care about? Probably not, so I probably won't say it. Um, let's see. So so what's going on here with uh, Stephanie as a little aside? Yeah. Something about the dentist. Yes. Yeah, Lee, she'll be joining us. Oh, she rescheduled it for 4 o'clock, not 2 o'clock. Okay, well, we're going to move on then. It's going to be a, a whole show without Steph. Again, she wasn't here last week either. <sighs> oh, well. Um, the second cartoon that we received was from Andy Meyer. He says, on the last episode, y'all talked about a comic, and I couldn't re- resist sending my favorite in. Thank you all for the podcasts. Hope to get together in New Orleans soon. Oh, that would be a lot of fun. I love New Orleans. And of course, it's another, we were talking about uh, the Far Side cartoon. I think, Nick, you had mentioned it, the one where there's like a break in the clouds and one pilot says to the other, hey, I wonder what a mountain goat is doing way up here in the clouds. (laughs) Yeah, that is very good. Um, This one is also another good one. Uh, A a very large um, baby on a runway with its arms spread and legs extended, and two pilots sitting on its neck, and the pilots are saying, fuel, check, lights, check, oil pressure, check, we've got clearance. Okay, Jack, let's get this baby off the ground. (laughs) Bam. Yeah, Uh, it's a big, big baby. All right. Thank you guys for, for that, and I see that we all share the same really weird sense of humor. Um, number four, Brett sends this in APG crew. It's not, it's interesting how this lovely story is dated on Valentine's day. All of us as passengers on a flight have had the occasional crying or anticipated crying baby. In this story, it seems the only noisy person was the passenger that was complaining. I can share one situation from a few years ago. I took my seat on a plane, and when I looked around, there were five children that seemed to be less than five years old, and I thought I was in for a nightmare of a flight. However, it turned out that these were some of the most well-behaved children around, and we all had a great flight. And he said, enjoy the news below. I've heard that you, I, I have heard you share some of your stories of unruly passengers in prior podcasts. Yes, we have. So... I think we should start off uh, before we move any further in his feedback by playing this. All right, that's enough of that before YouTube gets upset with me. Uh, let's see. So we had this situation happen, as he said, on the, on Valentine's day, uh, a passenger was removed from a Delta airlines flight earlier this month. And by the way, it was not Delta. It was Endeavor air, which is a connecting carrier for Delta airlines. Um, a passenger was removed for loudly complaining about having to sit next to an eight month old baby. An annoyed passenger was kicked off. Okay. They do it again. They repeat the same dang thing in the article. Marissa Rundell, a mom from Hammondsport, New York, was seated with her son Mason on a flight scheduled to depart from John F. Kennedy International Airport for Syracuse on February 6th. Oh, wait a minute. It's not Valentine's Day. February 6th, when a woman preparing to take her seat across the aisle began complaining 
Uh, she came to the back and slammed her bags down. She said, this is, this is effing ridiculous. It's bull something rather having to sit in the back of the plane. Rundell claims she then asked the woman to watch her language twice and was told to shut the F up and shove it. <laughs> well, very nice. Next. Nice yeah, very nice. And next, the woman began complaining about being seated close to a crying baby on the plane, although Mason was not crying at the time. Can I sit somewhere else? The woman can be heard saying in footage Rundell shared to Facebook. I'm not sitting near a crying baby. Soon afterward, an attendant on the flight, which was operated by Endeavor Air, yay, they put the proper airline name in here finally, tells the woman she can take the next flight if she prefer. Uh, it, I have a little um, audio from this video if you want to hear it. Let me, uh, let me play that. He's not going to cry the whole time. Your name? Tabitha, nine seven six. Thank you, Tabitha. You may not have a job tomorrow. I want this lady. No, I can't. I can't, Tabitha. I have to. I apologize. Please. No, I apologize. All right, I apologize. I have to be in this place. Thank you, Tabitha. She was screaming at the baby. I'm not screaming. I'll be quiet now, please. Hey, I'm sorry. I was really stressed out. Please, Tabitha. Thank you. Well. She said thank you, but uh, they ended up making her get off the flight. Uh, I think that she would have been okay, and uh, to the point at which she said to Tabitha, uh, "I don't think you're going to have a job anymore," or something to that effect. And then, as soon as she finished that sentence, Tabitha said, "I don't want this airplane, this woman on this airplane, or on this flight." And that was it. She crossed the line, and uh, there was no going back. And uh, uh, so again, the, um, the mother with the, uh, young child posted this on Facebook. She said mostly just for her, you know, the people that follow her on Facebook, but somehow, uh, the general public caught wind of this and, uh, it kind of blew up. And, uh, before you know it, um, I guess the word got back to this lady's employer. Uh, that's the next item here in the feedback. Uh, the woman who allegedly screamed at a mother and her baby aboard the Endeavor flight has been suspended from her job with the New York state government. The woman, identified as Susan Perez by Spectrum News, was removed from an Endeavor flight on the 6th of February following an incident just prior to takeoff at JFK. And... Uh, Let's see. State employees are and must be held to the highest standard, both professionally and per personally, said Ronnie Reich, a director of public information for the New York State Council of the Arts, where Perez, Perez is reportedly employed as a program director. We were notified of the situation and have commenced an investigation. This employee has been removed from the office and placed on leave until further notice and until the inquiry is resolved. So uh, I guess the, uh, the bottom line is let's behave and be civil with uh, other folks out there and also realize that in this day and time when people have, you know, video recorders on their telephones that uh, you should watch what you're doing, you know, behave so that you don't uh, get ratted out and lose your job potentially. Apparently she's 
making somewhere. I read that she makes like 95000 a year as the uh, as a program director for the Council of the Arts uh, for the state of New York. So what rut row? Now, the, yeah. uh, the lady that uh, had the child and kind of, you know, told her to shut her trap and stop swearing kind of feels bad. Uh, she said she had no intent, you know, of this lady losing her job or potentially losing well, her job. But what what does that have to or how is she representing the state of New York? That's what I want to know. I mean, she's on the airplane. How does anybody know what you do for a living or who you work for? I don't know. I mean, how you act is one thing. Uh, if you act a fool and you act a fool, but why is she losing a job? Because she wasn't representing the state of New York in any way. I don't know. I I don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's social media being uh, judge and jury uh, and executioner in this case, I think. Mm-hmm. Of course, at least, um, you know, she's being placed on leave. So it doesn't necessarily mean that she's going to lose her job, but I'm sure it's, you know, giving her more trouble than she was expecting. But again, you know, she shouldn't have been a rude, um, you know what, to begin with. But again, I, I agree with you guys, you know, that that shouldn't be grounds for losing your job. Maybe I she's mean, like this in her job and they were all going, yes, finally we have something that we can get her fired for. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, but <laughs> I don't know. I'm just in a court of law. I don't even know how that would. I mean, I know the court of public opinion. Yeah, it's one thing you don't you know, don't sit there and yell at a child. I mean, if I'm sitting in my uniform and I, you know, yeah. And the kids kick in the back of my seat, which has happened. You know, I might turn around and say politely, "Hey, excuse me, do you mind probably not doing that or be PC about it?" But you know, if you're in uniform, you have to act a certain way, even if you're on the airplane as a non-rev or the airport or anywhere around that type of scenario that they can identify you as an employee. Of course, but when you're on a public transit mode of transportation. It has no bearing on your job, and I don't even think in the court of law if they tried to go after her job that that it would stand up. I think that would no. be wrongful termination. Yeah, I think so. so I, I I I have a problem with with her talking to a lady that has a child, but you don't know what happened prior to that, and and it's again we don't we don't have the full story. So I I I I think that. This is an overreaction, of course, as always. So, yeah. Okay. Well, Brett, thanks for uh, sending that in and bring it to our attention. And I think we all agree. Uh, you know, just you know, behave nicely. But uh, you know, th- this is perhaps an overreaction by the uh, state of New York. So, I think, and I agree with you, Dana, that uh, if she is actually fired, she'll have grounds for a lawsuit and she'll most likely win it. Cost the uh, state of New York even a lot more than they would have spent otherwise. Um, not not that we're giving legal advice or, or no, trying to weigh in. We are not lawyers. No, yeah. no, we are not lawyers. We're just giving our free legal something. advice. And it's yes. worth exactly how much you're paying for it. Exactly. Nothing. All right. Richard uh, says, question regarding a system to share weather info amongst planes. I was fascinated by the mention of the new software that uh, Delta has where it uses the aircraft's accelerometer system to plot areas of turbulence and then display it on other aircraft equipment. 
That sounds like such a brilliant system, but at the same time, such an obvious thing to do. And I wonder why other aircraft haven't got this system installed. Maybe it's a cost thing. Why would you, why would an airline encourage flight planning to go hundreds of miles out of the way to save flying through a few bumps? Anyway, uh, that got me thinking, do you or any of your crew know of some sort of system where, for example, I'm going to paint a picture here for you. Jeff is flying his MD-88 towards a thunderstorm from the south. Maybe Dana is flying towards the same storm from the north. Maybe the storm is quite big, so individually you can't see just how big the storm is because your weather radars on their own can't see all the way through it. And then along comes Nick from the east and sees part of the storm on his weather radar. Each aircraft can only see bits of the storm, so my question is, is there a system that would send all three aircraft weather radar pictures up to the cloud to be downloaded by all the other aircraft to get a nice 3D pic- big picture view of weather and storms in real time. That way, Steph can come along in her Cirrus without a weather radar, but be able to see exactly what's going on and where. Just a thought. If this system doesn't exist, then I copyright it. Haha, <laughs> Richard. <laughs> now, they well, do have something. Go ahead, Dana. I was going to say, Steph actually has a much better ability in her Cirrus to see weather than we do, because they have the ability to upload uh, next Nexrad radar, which really gives you a nice picture of what's around, where all we have is that very small slice that uh, Richard's talking about. We only have that very little, little slice, but we now have technology, which I think you're going to talk about, Jeff, that we have uh, on our uh, on our uh, Surface, soon-to-be iPad, that we can also look at. That's what you're going to talk about. Well, I was going to say that um, just right behind the cockpit door, um, sitting in rows 1 through 40, are passengers with their electronic devices and they're tuned into the Wi-Fi system and they can just go to any of a number of places that uh, that display Nexrad radar in real time. Well, with about a four to five minute delay. But uh, that bird's eye view is ironically available as long as you're not a pilot in the cockpit of an airplane. <laughs> so now that uh, is a, a general, that, that that's really applying to the current state of things for our airline. But as, as Dana just mentioned, we do have the ability now uh, with one of the uh, flight weather viewer apps to get um, not this exactly the same type of information that you could uh, by going to a Nexrad site and being able to choose different uh, presentations as far as reflectivity and that kind of thing. But it does give us an idea of where the weather actually is in the tops of the weather, the radar tops of the uh, of the precipitation returns. And that at least gives us uh, a somewhat accurate uh, view, a bird's eye view of weather systems and how far they extend, etc. And it's just uh, a matter of being able to access the wife, the internet via the Wi-Fi system on the airplane. That's basically it. So, yeah, no, uh, there, there is a, a big problem with uh, trying to get us all to identify the same storm, though, and it's the same problem that um, military guys encountered. And I have a little bit of experience in this because I spent some time working with British Aerospace um, on their uh, data linking system that allowed uh, aircraft to input into a huge database where all the um, aircraft they could see were. So you get 
a fighter saying, well, I can see these three airplanes here and an AWACS, I can see these 50 airplanes and other. The problem is that um, each aircraft has got a certain error in its position. They're all, all perfectly positioned. Each radar has a slight error built in. Uh, and if um, an aircraft identifies a storm and another aircraft identifies a storm, uh, are they two storms or are they the same storm? And until you get a really clever piece of software to um, work out whether this we're seeing a series of small storms uh, in the same area or one big storm, that's where this all breaks down. And uh, the chance of getting all these different airliners and aircraft and data all amalgamated and make it entirely accurate enough for Steph in her Cirrus to accurately avoid it is not as easy as it sounds, is all I'm saying. Well, of course, weather is always changing as well. I mean, if you look, if you if you look at any you know, airplanes move around faster. That's uh, that's, <laughs> that's what true. I'm saying. Yeah, they do, and 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 the viewpoint from each aircraft is different. So, yeah, I absolutely agree with with either one, each one of you. Yeah, and then Robert in the chat room is saying, "Think of the bandwidth and data processing that that oh, would yeah, entail." That's the so, other problem. Yeah. yeah, unless you've got military uh, funds to go for, <laughs> right? So you know, right now, you know the the best available, you know, other than the cor- the forward looking radar that we have, which is real time, uh, the displays that you can find on a number of weather uh, related sites, the Nexrad returns, um, you know, maybe delayed five minutes or so is uh, pretty darn accurate and uh, about as good as you need, I would say. So, And wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree, especially during summertime when, you, when you're dealing with the, a line of thunderstorms or thunderstorms downrange, I mean, it's good to see what's right in front of you real time and you know, what we can see, the size of the pie that we can see in, the, in our airplane. But really what I'd like to know is, well, which direction is my best choice of action based on what's ahead of me? Right. Uh, you know, in the future, you know, 20, 30, 50, 100 miles down road. So that's where uh, it would be nice to have a, a high-level overview of the next rad or some type of similar system. Right, we have tactical information, and uh, we would it would be really nice to have both tactical and strategic uh, information yeah, available. Well yeah. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Uh, thanks, uh, Richard, for that. Uh, another Richard and Steve say, and they both share the common... Um, sentiment and it involves Captain Nick's crew logs and again that is uh, available to you if you uh, support the show financially and become part of the coffee fund cadre Richard writes hi all have a coffee on me please thank Captain Nick for his latest batch of crew logs they're really interesting always remember that boring and routine for you is often fascinating for us mere mortals it was a very inter- it was very interesting to hear Nick going through his Boston trip in such detail. The reasons why certain decisions are made are often as interesting as those decisions themselves. Beating the de-icing countdown, not testing the flaps until the last minute, etc. Keep up the good work. And again, that's Richard Adams. And Stephen writes, Hi, APG crew. Pleased to have recently become a patron and wanted to say how much I'm enjoying the crew logs and in particular some of Nick's very insightful logs on life as an airline pilot. Two logs in particular I enjoyed were Nick's log about his A340 whitetail repositioning flight and also his Boston trip where he battled with technical issues and the snow on departure. 
The way Nick walks us through these experiences really gives an enjoying, in-depth look into the life of an airline pilot and allows folk like me to live the life of a pilot vicariously. Great work. Please keep them coming, Steve. So, Well, that's very kind of Richard and Steve. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Much appreciated. Well, you do do a great job. And so do you, Dana, now that you've uh, started putting them out as well. I guess you guys are really setting the bar awfully high. I guess I'm going to have to uh, start uh, trying to up my uh, game standard. Yeah, up your game, up yours. Exactly. <laughs> That's the only thing I could think of when I said that. <laughs> We've upped our game. You should up yours. Well, something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, speaking of... Um, Captain Nick, and well, this isn't necessarily a crew log, but it's something that many, many people have have uh, said over time and time again how much they enjoy your Plain Tales installments. And I think it would be a good time now for us to do this week's installment RAF Form 414, Volume 2. Take it away, old pilot. Pilots Plane Tales, RAF Form 414, Volume 2. We continue with bits from my RAF logbook when on the 12th of December 1977 at RAF Coningsby in Lincolnshire, the English county that saw so many brave boys head off in their Lancasters, Wellingtons, Stirlings and the like during the Second World War, I took my first flight in an F-4 Phantom. It's a particularly flat area of the country, and in December, with a cutting easterly wind, it's so cold it'll freeze the balls off a brass monkey. Now, before anyone gets upset, a brass monkey is a metal plate used aboard an old man of war to stand cannonballs on beside the cannon and it's made of brass to stop the chance of striking an accidental spark. Iron and brass contract at different rates, so when it gets cold, the brass plate can shrink until the balls fall off. I joined number 228 Operational Conversion Unit on Air Defence Long Course number 14. But before I was given the chance to clamber up into the lofty perch that was the cockpit of the Phantom, there was a great deal of ground training and simulators to get through. We sat in classrooms watching technicians in old brown coats chalk up diagrams on the blackboards, or, if we were lucky, use one of those newfangled overhead projectors. The simulator was bolted to the floor, and before we got to use it, the tiny camera that was guided around a model landscape to simulate low flying was disabled. When the Phantom's role changed to purely air defence, sadly such fun kit was not required. Eventually, when we knew our way around the simulator well enough, and had studied the intricacies of airblown flaps and slats, etc., we got our chance to fly. I have mentioned the kind and patient instructor I had, Roy Lawrence, in the previous logbook tale, and how he dispatched a friendly Jaguar with a sidewinder, but that was yet to come. Roy had other problems this day, namely me. 
I wish I could remember more of this momentous occasion, the day we kitted up in our long johns, G-suits, acrylampile bunny suits, immersion suits with rubber seals on wrists and neck, boots, silk glove inners, immersion gloves on top, helmet and harness, and waddled out to X-ray Victor 396, sitting quietly on the line. Standing beside the twenty-ton monster, Roy took me round, showing me where the gauges were for the emergency flap, rat, gear and brakes, pressure between 2,000 and 3,100 psi. We checked the static vents were clear, that the radar was shut and locked, the intakes were clear, the hydraulic PC1 and 2 accumulator gauges were 1,000 plus or minus 50 psi, and that the auxiliary air doors were open with secure linkages. We checked the pitot covers were removed and that the brake chute door was closed properly with a telltale flag to show that there was really a chute in there. I expect I looked a bit overawed as it came time to clamber up and get in. Roy would have climbed up the nav's ladder, one of which, I might add, would also serve as the ladder for Luke Skywalker's X-Wing in the first Star Wars movie, into the back seat and started trying to erect his inertial navigation system. I would dutifully be working around my ejector seat, checking the pins, latches, banana links, cables, rods, guards, and dialing my weight into the pitch control unit, plus the other intricacies of that explosive chair, before sitting down to strap in. Luckily, we had a sea-off crew to help hand us the straps and to remove the top pin of the seat that we couldn't reach. With my helmet pigtail plugged in, I could speak to Roy, who chatted away in his calming QFI way as I worked round the cockpit, doing everything from memory as I had learned to do in the simulator. Then came the time to wind up the pair of mighty Rolls-Royce Spays that we sat wedged in between, so close that Roy's elbows would have rested on top of the intakes. With a confidence I probably didn't feel, I would have given the ground crew a wind-up signal by twirling a digit in the air, and after checking in front and behind, they would return the signal. Both engine masters on, then the right start switch to on, checking that the LP shaft started rotating immediately. That done, I would click the throttle through the HP fuel cock gate to idle and wait. Oil pressure rising, starter clicks off, check hydraulics and pneumatic pressures, nozzle below one quarter open, right generator on and buzz tie closed. With both engines running, the aircraft on internal power and everything humming along, it would be time for the functional checks. Speed brake cycle, flaps down and back to half, trims check and set 2 degrees nose down. Stabog switches on, check the autopilot and paddle switch, Stabog's off. Then it was time to wave the chocks and call for taxi. Roy started off, but once we were underway, he gave me control and I tried to steer the beast. We drove it around using the rudder pedals that were linked to the nosewheel steering, once a red button on the stick was held down. It was certainly easier than the Hunter, which relied on differential brakes, operated by dabbing a bicycle brake lever on the back of the stick while the rudder was held to one side or the other. This was like steering a Cadillac. 
lined up on the end of the runway with the stick held firmly back against the stops, I did the final checks. Peter heat on, flaps half, stabogs engaged. Anti-skid on, caption out, engine checks within limits, warnings out, ramps retracted, and release the brakes, powering up to full military. Clicking the throttles outboard, I pushed them further forward to full reheat and felt the huge surge of thrust push me back into the ejector seat. The noise was incredible. The runway edges became a blur, and as the nose started to rise, I checked slightly, but we were already in the air. Gear, then flaps, Roy shouted, before we overstressed them as we accelerated away. I was riding a high of adrenaline, and my grin was so wide it risked creeping out of the confines of my oxygen mask. Those first three trips went by in a blur of activity, and with only four hours fifteen minutes, Roy stepped aside and the brave navigator, Flight Lieutenant Hurst, took his place in the back seat for my first trip as a proper Phantom pilot. Two flights later, it was my course colleague, Brian B.K. Hinton, student navigator extraordinaire, who climbed into the back seat for our first student cruise solo, where we did our best to terrify ourselves being without adult supervision. Four trips later, I had an instrument rating, and the conversion part of the course was more or less over. Now we had to go to work. Work meant learning the basics of intercepts. BK and I tried to understand how the Phantom radar display worked. It wasn't an A-scope. That's a simple line, like an oscilloscope. It wasn't a C-scope. That's like the display of an old air traffic radar, with the antenna in the middle of a circle and the radiating beam rotating round, showing range and azimuth. It was something in between. Our radar swung back and forth, 60 left, 60 right. So it was like a segment of an air trafficker's C-scope, a bit like a large pizza slice. The drawback of that pizza slice C-scope display was that as a target came close, it would have slid down into that cramped corner at the bottom of the display and would be really difficult to accurately read range and bearing. The cure was to electronically manipulate and distort the display so that the bottom of the scope was as broad as the top. This was called a B-scope, and it meant that the pie-shaped scan now looked like a square. However, in curing one problem, another was created. A target coming straight down the scope directly at us on a collision course holds a constant bearing. This is easy to see on a C-scope, as the blip moves in a direct line heading for the centre of the display. If it's going to miss you, its blip track doesn't point directly at you, but slightly to one side. On a B-scope, an aircraft on a collision with, say, a 90-degree heading difference, so I'm heading north and he's, say, heading west, will come down a line around 45 degrees to the right of the scope centre line. He'll look like he's going to miss, since he's a long way from the centre of the display, but, and it's a big but, because of the way the display is distorted to get more detail, we are now the whole bottom of the display, and anything that comes straight down 
is going to smack us straight in the face. A target that's going to cross ahead or behind will come down in a curved path, a bit like a hockey stick. Straight at first, but slowly as it gets closer, it will diverge slightly before, at the last minute, diving off the side of the display. Hard enough for me to explain, and even harder for us, as students, to understand. BK and I spent evening after evening memorising blip tracks and collision paths so that we could understand where to put our aircraft to get onto the ideal approach path, hit the key point and then conduct a controlled turn to roll out directly behind our target at one mile. We did it first on paper, then on bicycles pedalling at each other, then on the mechanical monster that was the air intercept trainer, and finally in the aircraft. The only real aids we had were the radar and a compass. The only variables were our heading and our airspeed. For the NAVs, this was the hardest part of the course, and far from the most exciting. The hard bit for the pilots was air combat training. At last, we were allowed to bunt and stunt our meaty monsters. The setups were canned, and we started in the rear quarter of our adversary in a position to attack and told to close for a missile shot. When we commenced, our target would turn into us, and it was up to us to manoeuvre around them to get that shot, or perhaps close to guns range. This would involve magical manoeuvres such as the yo-yo, both high and low. The low yo-yo we performed by flying down and to the outside of our target circular path, gaining energy so that we might pull up into a high yo-yo to reduce the corner velocity and turn hard in behind. Our cooperative target started just by flying in a circle, but soon they were allowed to reverse and fight properly, and a full dogfight would ensue. Of course, our opponents were usually instructors, even godlike qualified weapons instructors, so for us to get a shot off usually meant them fighting well below their ability level. After all, we were still trying to learn. Whilst the pilots were yanking and banking, the navs were breaking their necks trying to keep sight of the bogey when it went behind the wing line learning how to call our eyes on, or if necessary, verbally taking control of the aircraft by talking to us. They would tell us to roll until the bogey was on the centre line of the canopy, and then pull until it ran down the canopy and magically appeared in the windscreen. We slowly progressed, ticking each exercise off in turn, punctuated by the odd problem. On trip AD3, that was Air Defence Trip 3, the weather closed in, so BK and I diverted to Coltishall, and on AD 22 we limped home with a generator failure. Around Christmas, the first Star Wars movie came out, and the whole student course went en masse to see it. We all loved it, since it seemed to be entirely about fighter pilots and their robotic backseaters, albeit in the wrong century. From then on, most of our navs got the nickname R2-D2. The course was also interrupted by a war exercise called a tachyval, a tactical evaluation. All the OCU staff reverted to a war footing, which left us, unqualified students, with nothing much to do. 
Of course, the RAF hates people who sit around in the mess drinking beer, so we were immediately drafted as guards and told to march around the perimeter of the airfield in the dark, freezing and soggy weather of a Lincolnshire winter. In peacetime, there were never enough guns to go around, so we usually got pickaxe handles and spent several miserable nights getting trench foot and frostbite. On our course, there were a couple of squadron leaders, old hands from the Lightning Force, who were being retrained on a decent fighter. I'll never forget seeing the man I was to go to my first squadron with, Harry McLean, sitting atop a guard tower in the pouring rain under a poncho, emitting a constant stream of swear words about the bloody Air Force that only a true Scotsman would know. All went well until some over-eager territorial army bods arrived at the perimeter to storm the airfield. Faced with a young sprog like me, wielding a bit of wood and shouting bang bang didn't have the desired effect, and before I knew it I was face down in the mud with a boot on the back of my head. By the end of March the course was over, and I had my posting, number 43 Squadron, the Fighting Cock. So I girded my loins, took my 63 hours and 15 minutes of total phantom experience and pointed my rattly old car northwards. But that's another story. Another well-told story. Well, thank you, Jeff. <laughs> Sorry. I, I was indisposed and uh i was listening over the speaker system and i thought oh heck he's wrapping it up i need to hurry up and get back <laughs> well i must okay. have i've had i had a busy week and uh i didn't have an offload time so uh that was a little shorter than normal yes it was <laughs> i should have known that before you know i have the uh, length of it uh right in front of me and i thought yeah, it looks like I have time to uh, use the toilet. Twice, Apparently not. Three times. <laughs> well, I didn't. I didn't make the decision to do it until uh, the last third of your ah. plane tail, and I'm in there washing my hands, and I'm thinking, "Oh, I hear music." <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> oh no. Ah. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, you have so much experience that you can tell and i'm thinking perhaps uh, how do you feel about writing you ever thought about writing some books uh well I, yeah kind of but uh I, I think that would be quite hard work because i think you can get away with a lot more when you're telling a story uh when you're writing a book you have to be pretty precise and uh and you have to have a, a real flair for it so i don't know if i'd be able to well, I think what you're doing with your talent right now is uh, is awesome. So uh, thanks again for taking the time to do these every week. Uh, I think uh, that for many, it's the highlight of the show. I think you are, Jeff. After all, you're a host. No, 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 no. Very kind of you. <laughs> no, just here, just kind of pushing the buttons and sometimes getting it right and sometimes not. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, let's see. I think we can continue now with some more feedback. Uh, Tim Van Ram, you ever heard of that? Heard of that guy? Yeah, nice guy. <laughs> Very nice in Northern California. He sent us this. Now, I'm sure that everybody in the world heard about uh, the uh, terrible uh, school shooting 
in Parkland, Florida, outside of Fort Lauderdale. Uh, Tim writes to say, Captain Jeff, sad but touching story about colleagues showing up for the funeral of a victim of the Parkland shooting where or whose dad is a United captain. So a United captain uh, lost his daughter to the um, the school massacre. And uh, he has a link here to the CNN article and a, a very sobering picture of the uh, many, many, I don't know how many are there, probably 40, 50 uh, pilots wearing their, and, and flight attendants, wearing their uh, uniforms. Uh, let's see, let me read the article. United Airlines Captain Tony Minalto and his family held a funeral for their daughter, Gina Rose, on Tuesday at Mary Help of Christians Church in Parkland. Employees, uh, did I mispronounce his name? Montalto. Okay, there we go. Employees from multiple divisions of United, JetBlue, Spirit, American Airlines, and FedEx attended to honor the young girl's life. Lined up together in uniform, the pilots created an image of true solidarity. Um, according to United Airlines spokeswoman Maggie uh, Sherman Schmerin, this is a beautiful example of how the United family supports one another. Uh, the heartwarming moment was captured by United Captain Dan Petrovich, who works alongside Gina's father. There were no specific pl- specific plans for what we did. It just happened out of love and respect for the suffering of a member of our United and Aviation family, he told CNN. 14-year-old Gina was a member of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School's Winter Guard on the marching band. She was described as sweet and artistic by those who were close to her. So uh, our our uh, thoughts and prayers go with uh, Tony uh, Matalto and his family, uh, his daughter and daughter's friends. Absolutely. And continuing, continuing on to a, a lighter subject, uh, Lucas the Flying Kiwi sent us in some audio feedback. Let's take a listen. Hey guys, uh, it's the Flying Kiwi here. Uh, just uh, listening to uh, 312 and um, just have a bit of a comment for the guy who uh, talked about uh, doing visual approaches in a PC sim. Um, I'm a PC simmer from way back um, because you know, I've always loved airplanes and even from Flight Simulator 1 which was awful um, I was doing uh, PC simming um, I use it these days to do instrument approaches um, because uh, I had a rush of blood to the head and decided to get a, a private instrument rating uh, which I'm sort of still lumbering on with um, haven't completed it um, but it's fun, you know, and um, if I haven't been in an aircraft in a while, I, I do a circuit in a, in a sim and, and, and uh, just sort of remind myself where my feet are. Um, if, um, you guys are absolutely right when you talk about using the, the, the aids. Um, abs- absolutely. Um, if you're flying visual, you're still using VOR and DME. Um, DME, um, which is the distance measuring equipment, um, is, is very important even for visual approaches because... Um, even when you're eyeballing it, you know, uh, you know, a lot of people have um, GPS these days, but the DME is great because it'll tell you, you know, you are five miles or seven miles from 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 the from the station. Um, I would have a look at the approach plates for the particular airport that you want to sim on. Um, most of the visual, um, most of the instrument approach plates are gobbledygook, and and I totally realise that. However, most of them have a profile picture. 
And why this is quite useful for, for a visual approach is if you're like me and your descent management is quite, well, pants, really, and terrible. Um, oh, my descent management is terrible. Um, it's a great aid to tell you what height you should be at at what DME distance from the airport. Um, and even if you're not chasing the glide slope or not using the glide slope, it's a really good... Um, it's a really good aid to say, you know, 12 miles out, you need to be at 4,000 feet and no greater than 170 KIA, uh, KIAS. Um, that's, that's a great cue for you to say, at 12 miles, I need to be this high and this fast. Um, and that really helps my visual um, approaches when I'm doing stuff in the sim. Um, obviously, when I'm up in the little real planes, um, I'm, I'm using the eyeball and, and just what I know of, of, of the airfield. Um, but it's it's a great it's a great aid. In fact, I actually use flight sim um, if I'm going to do a cross country to somewhere I've never been before. I actually usually um, go up and and do a do a cross country flight to the airfield just just to improve my situational awareness. Actually, of you know how far to the coast it is and where the nearest town is in relation to the airport. Um, because I had a horrible experience once of flying over a place called Hamner Springs and not being able to find the airport. <laughs> Until a helpful chap on frequency pointed me in the right direction. Um, so every, every now and again I, I jump on that to, to do a quick reference check. But um, have a look at the approach. Um, have a look at the DME and the, and the height settings. Um, ignore all the rest of the stuff, DH decision heights and all that sort of crap. You don't need to worry about that. Just look at the DME and the height um, and then you'll know how far from the airport and how high you should be at that point. Um, and of course, when you get to about three thousand feet and you're on profile, um, you know the the rest is just eyeballing and and, and away you go. So um, yeah, just uh, just remember your three, remember your feet, and remember your throttles. <laughs> anyway, um, that's a little bit of uh, helpful sim tips from me. Flying uh, Kiwis out, Talons Douglas. <laughs> Thank you, Lucas. Flying Kiwi uh, for some great tips for the uh, person looking for advice on how to fly a visual approach on their PC SIM software. Yeah. I knew someone out there would know how to do it properly. Yeah. yeah. That was great. Compared to what we were able to give them last week. Well, I think we got pretty close. <laughs> yeah, pretty close. <laughs> well, In the not ballpark. Quite 50%. Yeah. yeah well, quite. you know, we're always shooting for that. Yep. <laughs> uh, we, uh, on a previous show, we also talked about the Aleutian 62 it may have been the last show. Lady Agnes and the uh, clip from YouTube. Uh, did you guys get a chance? Well, I know that Nick, you did. Um, yep. Dana, did you see it too? I did not. Okay. Uh, it's just, it's crazy. You really need to watch it. Um, so Tillman says, here's some voice feedback with more information about the Aleutian 62 that landed in a cloud of dust on a grass strip in the middle of nowhere in East Germany. All the best, and he also included some photos. Greetings, APG crew. This is Private Pilot Tillman from Berlin, Germany, and I have some more information about the Ilyushin 62 that landed on the grass strip in 1989. It is only about 20 minutes as the Piper flies away from me, and I have visited the Lady Agnes more than once. The small village of Stöln has an active soaring community. It is their grass strip that the large Russian-made jet landed on. The story is quite entertaining and would probably even make for a good Plain Tales episode. The Ilyushin 62, or VC Tensky, as Nick says, 
had been an important part of the long-haul fleet of the East German flag carrier Interflug. In the late 1980s, the four-engine jets were aging, and the oldest ones were approaching their life cycle limitation of 7,900 landings. Instead of paying for scrapping the old airframes, some smart person at Interflug came up with the plan to donate the airplanes to museums and parks around the country. That is how the idea was born to bring the jetliner to the tiny town of Stöln, which has arguably the oldest airport in the world. After all, it was here that Otto Lilienthal had his first sustained and controlled flights, during which he took off, maneuvered and landed again at the same spot. And by my definition, that makes this spot an airport. The chief pilot of the IL-62 fleet at Interflug, a gentleman named Heinz-Dieter Kalbach, was intrigued by the idea. So him and an enthusiastic team of Interflug pilots and flight engineers were trying to find a solution for over a year before they finally developed a possible scenario. The aircraft in question was going to be an IL-62 with the registration Delta Delta Romeo Sierra Echo Golf. It needed to be put on quite an extensive diet before an attempt could be made to land the airplane on the very short grass strip. So the cabin was stripped off all seats and everything else that they didn't need for the flight. And all other non-essential equipment was thrown out, even including the APU. Then they developed a special landing technique and several trial runs were made before the actual landing was performed in Stern on October 23rd of 1989. That was only days before the wall came down. The flight and the landing itself worked remarkably well. The only thing that nobody really thought about was how much dust the reversers were going to kick up from the dry grass strip. So the whole airplane was basically covered in a cloud of thick dust. And that is what is also seen on the video, what looks quite remarkable. But once the dust had settled, Kalbach and his crew climbed out of the jet and were greeted by a cheering crowd. Kalbach is still a very well-known aviator in Germany. He continued with a pretty long and successful career in the reunited Germany and he flew for many more years commercially. He once even fought off a hijacking attempt during which he was injured quite heavily and still managed to land his aircraft safely. After his commercial career, he became first pilot and later instructor on the DC-3 that performed commemorative flights for the Berlin Airlift. His IL-62 Sierra Echo Golf is still in Stern and it can be visited. So if any of you in the APG community are ever up for a little excursion to the middle of nowhere in Brandenburg, let me know. I'll be happy to show you around. Excellent. Very good. Will they be playing the Brandenburg Concerto in the background? I hear it loud and clear. <laughs> Didn't quite hear that. I can't do a play tale now because Dilma's just done one. That was brilliant. I thought that was fantastic, Dilma. Great story. Right. And, and Jeff, uh, I stand corrected. 
I did actually see the video on this. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, it, they crazy. did a couple of little flybys and then landed and kicked up a lot of dust and almost like he was bouncing in, in a very short landing, short field landing. I did see it. It was very interesting. I had to watch it a couple of times. Less than uh, 3,000 feet of grass runway. Yeah, that takes some doing. Yeah. Some some mad skills, huh? Yeah, absolutely. I like the way they now use it as an awning for a cafe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did, so you were able to see some of those pictures that uh, Tillman sent us? Yeah, I can see them all. Awesome. Um, I'll put that in the show notes so you, dear listener, can look at them as well in your leisure. Thanks, Tillman. Uh, Liz sent in some feedback regarding... Um, well, let me just read the headline here. Model brings emotional support casserole on American Airlines flight. Are you familiar with the term casserole? Um, Nick, is that something oh, yes. that, hmm? okay. Yes, uh, a meat dish in a uh, casserole, um, dish. <laughs> there you I, go. I meat, meat, um, what would you call it? Stew in a casserole dish? Yes. Yeah, I guess uh, in America they have, it can be a meat dish, it can be a veg- vegetable mix. It's usually a, like a whole bunch of ingredients all put together and baked in a casserole dish. Um, anyway, remember the model Chrissy Teigen? She's the one who tweeted about the eight-hour ANA flight from Los Angeles to, um, it says to Angeles, that's not right. Or maybe it is. Maybe Angeles City uh, in the Philippines last December. Uh, And remember, there was a stowaway aboard the flight. And then they had to return, I believe, uh, back to Los Angeles. Anyway, she's a prolific traveler, very well versed in the nuances of airline loyalty and premium cabins. Now she has waded into the emotional support debate. She took to Twitter to ask American Airlines... If I don't have a carry-on, can I bring a large ceramic casserole dish of scalloped potatoes in the plane? I'm not kidding. Is this okay? Is it too blunt or heavy an object? I'll cry if they throw it away. Three minutes later, she asked American Airlines to confirm. A conversation with American ensued, and Tegan referred to her potato dish as an emotional support casserole. (laughs) <laughs> and then there's the, the exchange, the, the uh, Twitter exchange. Uh, let's see. They say, American, we're here for you. Please send a DM, a direct message, uh, our way and let us know what we can do. Christine says, I would like to bring my emotional support casserole on my flight today. American says, you're welcome to bring an additional bag of food with you on board. Please double check with our friends. Ask TSA. Christine, it's not a bag, it's a casserole. (laughs) American, that's okay. As long as our friends at Ask TSA let it through security, you can take it on board with you. Christine finally says, thank you. (laughs) So so she got it to work, apparently. Uh, Conclusion, whether she knows it or not, and I suspect she does, and this is her intent, Tegan has added fuel to the flame of the emotional support animal debate. Her humor exposes the absurdity of the current policy and once again illustrates the need to revisit the oft-abused rules governing these sorts of pets, which should never be confused with true service animals. And that, if you're wondering, was an article from Live and Let Live and Let's Fly dot boardingarea.com. 
as best I can tell. Thank you, Liz. I'm glad that they let her have her uh, emotional support casserole. Well, it achieved the desired uh, um, result for her. She got publicity. So, thank yes, you. she did. Uh, let's see. Oh, we have some feedback. How long have we been going here? Three? Uh, quite. Two hours and 45 minutes or so. Okay. Uh, I think we have time to do at least one or two more. Yeah. Um, this is from Roger, Radio Roger Stern. Uh, he says, hi, Jeff. I don't expect you to put this on the air because it's probably of limited interest to your audience. In fact, I'll be submitting audio feedback on a different subject, which will be targeted to your podcast. But I just wanted to let you and Nick know that I took my first flying lesson. Well, you know what? After reading this, I decided and I wrote back to Roger. I think that indeed people listening to the show will appreciate this. Uh, so he continues. It was a birthday gift from my family and for a lot of reasons it will probably be a one-off however it was terrific we took off in a cirrus sr20 from westchester county white plains airport hotel papa uh, november and when we climbed to 3500 feet the instructor handed over the controls and gave me a set of headings to steer for i got the hang of it pretty quickly though at first i was not great at maintaining my altitude as the lesson went on, I developed a better sense of when to look for visual clues outside the cockpit, when to consult my instruments. I thought I would hate the side stick, more accurately a side yoke, because this is not fly-by-wire, but it was okay, and I liked having a clean view of the display. Let me read that again. But it was okay, and I liked having a clean view of the display. Knowing that the instructor was handling navigation, radio transmissions, and looking out for other aircraft, I'm well aware that I was carrying out just a small part of a pilot's duties. That part was humbling. Still, it was a great experience, and I can understand why you and your fellow pilots love doing this for a living. And again, that was uh, Radio Roger. And then, as he mentioned in this uh, last piece of feedback, he was going to send us some audio feedback. And... Take it away, Radio Roger. Well, greetings, airline pilot crew. This is Roger Stern, a.k.a. Radio Roger. I wanted to tell you about an unusual experience taking a round trip from New York JFK to West Palm Beach on JetBlue. We arrived at 11 p.m. I was seated maybe three-quarters of the way back, and by the time I got to the front of the plane to make my exit, I noticed that the captain and first officer were nowhere to be seen. The lights were off in the flight deck and there was just a flight attendant to bid us goodbye. The two pilots had up and left ahead of some of their passengers. I thought this might be a one-off, but on my return flight the same thing happened. I contacted JetBlue on Facebook and their answer was that the flight crew must have been rushing to another assignment. I wrote back to say that's ridiculous because one of my flights was the last one of the day. I was actually a little miffed. I always make a point of saying hello to the pilots and found it rude that they couldn't be bothered to stick around. Nick, I remember you saying that as a matter of safety, on Acme Red, you're required to remain on board until all the passengers are off. I want to know what you as pilots think about this practice. I'm probably alone. Most of my fellow passengers couldn't care less. But I think having pilots greet their customers is a tradition worth preserving. This is Radio Roger, over and out. Well, Radio Roger, I believe that everybody here on the APG crew would agree with you that 
if it's not a requirement, it, it should be, and uh, for many of it's a policy uh, for us to stay on the airplane and say goodbye to the passengers, unless there's a good reason to leave. There are cases when, especially when we're flying in and out of um, uh, hub airports, such as Atlanta International, where our, you know, we might be uh, coming in a little bit delayed and the next flight leaves in you know, 20, 25 minutes. And so we need to really be on our way and doing our pre-flight procedures and expe- inspections on the next flight. So, uh, and as I mentioned before on this show, uh, what I'll do in that case is I'll just pick up the PA and say, hey, folks, normally we'd be here to say goodbye. Uh, we just wanted to, again, thank you for flying with us today, but we have a short turnaround and we have to get to the next gate to prepare the next flight. And, uh, you know, I think that's, you know, the least we can do. And I, um, but you make a good point about, you know, the requirement to, to maintain or stay on board, especially the captain. Um, and Nick, is that, is that indeed an, a requirement for your company? Well, that's as I was told, uh, when I did my captain's course, that was quite a few years ago now, but, uh, I was, yeah, I was told that the captain was legally obliged uh, to remain on on the aircraft until the last of the passengers had disembarked. Uh, and that wasn't a company requirement. That is uh, a re- legal requirement uh, for air transport um, pilots. So that I've always treated it as, as such. And I always think it's just imagine the situation where you have strolled on a, off an aircraft, usually with the APU burning, um, and uh, the engineers haven't yet come up. Uh, and there's no one really responsible. And then you get a major uh, a fire warning, say, in the flight deck. No one there to hear it. No one there to tell whoever's left on the aircraft that an emergency has happened and it's now um, required make an emergency disembarkation. I mean, you may have people who need to go down the slides. You may have people on board who are wheelchairs and uh, would need great assistance getting off the aircraft in a hurry. I think it's personally irresponsible of the flight deck crew to leave before the last of their charges, their passengers, uh, are off. You know, I don't know if it's a legal requirement as far as our regulations are concerned in the United States. I don't believe so because nobody's ever said anything to me about that. Um, But I guess it's kind of a traditional thing, you know, held over from, you know, the ships and ships captains. What do they always say? The uh, the captain should be at least the last one to leave the ship. Um, but or I do go know down with the ship. Pardon me. Or go down. With or the go ship. down. Yeah, go down with the ship. Um, now I do know though that it is a policy at Acme uh, that again, as I mentioned before, you know that we have to stay and and say goodbye. And uh, you know I say have to. I guess a lot of pilots kind of treat that as a have to. They really don't want to. They want to get out of there as soon as they can, especially if it's their last leg of the trip. They want to get, you know, on the bus to the parking lot in their car on the way home and, you know, carry on with their lives. But it really doesn't take that much extra time to say goodbye to everybody. And then it also has a practical um, purpose. As you mentioned, Nick, you know, leaving the airplane, um, there might be a reason for you to be there. And I experienced this last year I was on the airplane. Actually, no, the previous crew had left the airplane and I went on and we were the next crew to take the uh, jet out and they were still deplaning and I didn't realize they were still deplaning. 
I think they were waiting for a couple of the passengers. Uh, they, they requested wheelchairs, and they were waiting for some wheelchairs to get down to the to the jet. And so I went on and and just uh, talked to the flight attendants that had brought the airplane in. And um, I think one of the passengers that was requesting a wheelchair was attempting to make their way up the aisle toward the front of the airplane to make it faster. That you know when the when the wheelchair finally arrived. And this person slipped, I guess they were, you know, putting their weight on one of the armrests and had slipped, fell down and had caught the armrest with their face on the way down. And they were bleeding all over the place. And the flight attendant looked at me and says, you know, can you, can you go call somebody, get somebody, um, uh, some kind of a medic or whatever, because this passenger is having a problem. She's like, I can't get off the airplane. And that is the case that they have a rule that says that if there are passengers still on the airplane, they are not allowed to leave the airplane. And so I'm thinking, good thing I was there. So I did, you know, got to the phone and uh, went up to the, uh, after I made a call, um, I guess on the radio I did first, I called the uh, ramp tower and said, we need a paramedic at this gate immediately. And then I ran up to the, to the uh, gatehouse and uh, talked to the gate agent and she called somebody as well. But I'm thinking, what if I hadn't been there? And uh, I guess that flight attendant probably would have broken the rule and, you know, got off the airplane and, and made a call on the phone at the jetway. But anyway, that, that just kind of uh, reemphasized to me the importance of staying on the airplane until the last passenger is off. Because, you know, like, what if you're in one of those situations? I don't know how you feel about this uh, data. Well, <clears throat> honestly, uh, I, and I'm going to I'm going to say this up front. I truly believe in exactly what you guys have just both said. I think realistically we are in the passenger service business. We don't fly boxes around. So we need to recognize the, the people as they get off the aircraft and thank them for their business. That's what differentiates us from everybody else. I mean, we wear a uniform for a reason. The distinguished uniform that we do wear is there's a reason for it because they want us to be seen and they want us to represent the company and the, and the, and the product and the brand that we represent uh, at Acme. But, uh, and that's how I honestly feel. I'm going to play devil's advocate for just a minute because I think we need an opposing view here. And there are other scenarios and circumstances in which uh, there are times, as you mentioned, uh, Jeff, a couple of them, but there are personal issues that, that come about. People, you know, we, we don't know, like that JetBlue flight, we don't know how many legs that JetBlue uh, crew flew. You don't know how many. I, I mean, I personally, I know a buddy of mine that lives in New Hampshire and drives all the way down to New York to, you know, because that's where he's based. So when he's done with his flying, the first thing he's doing is getting in the car and driving four hours home after he flew all day. So I'm, I'm not defending anybody, but I'm saying there are other situations beyond which are apparent, readily apparent um, to passengers as to the reason why crew members would not necessarily be there. Okay. So how long, how much longer would it take for you to stay until everybody was off the airplane? Probably another five minutes, maybe. I mean, five, 10, 15 minutes. Really? That's going to make a difference in, you know, your long day and driving home to New Hampshire. You know, I say, where's the BS flag? You're going to wave that again. You know, that's, come on. Everybody has their individual motivations. That's all I'm trying to say. And, 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 and that doesn't make it right, though. It doesn't make it right. I'm just throwing it out there that yeah. there's another another school of thought by some people out there. It's not how I think. Uh, I, you know, I always I make sure before I leave 
uh, you know, the captain will uh, say, you know, captain, you can leave and I'll, I'll take care of everything or, or vice versa. He'll say, you know, you go ahead. I've got everything. So, uh, you know, I'm of the, of the thought that there should always be a rep, you know, one of us. Yeah. It doesn't have to be both of us. In fact, a lot of the times if I'm flying with somebody that has to, uh, a lot of the times I don't go to the parking lot, I take Marta home. And so I know it's going to be easy and the trains run every 10 to 15 minutes. And I tell the person that I'm flying with, you know, if you're going out to the parking lot or if you're, you know, you need to commute home on a different flight, you're more than welcome to leave whenever there's a break. Uh, in the flow of passengers getting off the airplane. And, uh, you know, I have no problem with that at all. But when both, uh, and I'm seeing this more and more and more at our company, Dana, and it just, as you know, it just really frustrates me because it doesn't take that much time and effort uh, to to sit and you know or not stand, sit but stand and say goodbye to our customers uh, as they're leaving. And it really, if for them, it really makes a big difference. Jeff's pet peeves. So, <laughs> so you know, and, and you mentioned you know, 10, 15 minutes, you know, what happens if both pilots and I'm, I'm throwing a wrench in, in, into the mix here again, mm-hmm. but what happens if it's a difference between both pilots getting home on a commute versus, well, then that's a reason. That's night. a, that's a legitimate yeah. reason. That's a legitimate reason. So yeah. I'm, that's all, that's all I'm but saying. But I'm telling there, you there that are, most of the time that that's not the case. These are guys yeah, that no. live in Atlanta, you know, and, and are just going to their car to drive home. And I'm thinking, really? Come on, yeah. stay a little well, bit longer. And in fact, by the way, look it up in the flight operations manual and you'll see that it's that requirement is still there. <laughs> and, but and, there's a requirement for everybody to wear their hats and do all these other things as well. And, uh, you know, some people are just like they're at a cafeteria. They decide which rules they want to, uh, you know, adhere to and which ones they don't like. And so they're not going to follow. Well, and then you can get the philosophical difference between some uh, former red people versus blue people, you know, so that's, that's where a lot of that comes from too. So I, I think, I think that the South people for the most part, pilots, you know, are, are very much the thinking that you and I have, um, where some of the other, other people that I've got a few friends there, I'm getting off the airplane as fast as I can. I'm, I'm doing nothing extra, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, it, it really comes down to personal choice, but you know, your personal choice is to violate the company policy and, 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 you know, you get, to you don't know who's on your airplane. You know, you know, they don't come up to the co- the flight deck and say, "Hey, you know, you've got so and so from the company on the airplane, or this person or that person." So you never know who's going to be in the back of the airplane that might make a difference in what the person says when they get off the aircraft and what their experience was. You know, there's the it, it just it, it it makes a difference. So. Yeah. And, and those, uh, what do they call those net responder scores or whatever those, you know, we, we have people all the time asking for people to complete surveys and, and, uh, let us know how we did and that kind of thing. And they, and they tell us, we get the communications, uh, of, through flight operations, you know, that guys and gals out there, you know, a big part of get, us getting a big score from the consumer is you actually staying and saying goodbye to them as you're leaving the airplane. I mean, it really, it, it seems silly to us, but it's not, it, it really makes a, a big impression for the passenger. Yeah, and that, sure. you know, not to mention the fact, the practical aspects of it as captain Nick touched upon. So, well, of course they want to find out if, if you flew for the Navy. <laughs> yeah. I always love <laughs> that one. Do you fly for the Navy? No, yeah. I'm a civilian guy. Oh, it couldn't tell any difference. 
Yeah. So if you, so if you, uh, to, to translate what Dana is saying and you probably have picked it up, you know, if you come in and land and you're really praying the thing on, they always kind of like to joke around, ah, Navy pilot, huh? You know, because of landing on an aircraft carrier, you know, and not really flaring. And, uh, anyway, we just love that. That never gets old. Does it Dana? No, well, that the last one was, I mean, it was an absolutely picture perfect landing, smooth as glass. It came to a nice stop, taxi in. Hey, you in the Navy or what? I'm like, are you kidding? Me, are you really? Are you kidding? Me? It doesn't come any better than that. Really? Uh, you're just not appreciated, Dana. Just Some, not appreciated. You got you to get a chuckle. You got to yeah, chuckle. I know. All right. And uh, I think we have time for just one more. Some audio feedback from Brian. Take it away, Brian. Question for you, Nick. In episode 311, you described... Oh, wait a minute. It's for Nick. Shall uh, we continue? Hey, we We're done. Say something. Okay, here we go. Flying down to Barbados with a sore back and an onset of a cold, and really were pulling at my heartstrings for some sympathy, so much so I think I heard some weeping violins coming through the podcast. Ah, I'm just, I'm just kidding. But actually, the question I had for you, you went down to Barbados, you turned around in the airport... Um, and came back a couple hours later. And uh, on the flight home, um, in your situation, do you have access to the crew rest quarters? I figured you'd be in uniform, and I was wondering what the policy was there, or is it just for active duty um, personnel that are flying that flight home? Thank you so much for the plain tales and the discussion, and really appreciate your sense of humor in the podcast. Thanks, Brian from Des Moines. Bye. Thanks, Brian from Des Moines, and that is a good question. What's your answer, sir? Uh, there uh, wasn't any crew rest on the aircraft. It was uh. an A330. We don't have crew rest on our 330s. But uh, te- technically speaking, if it was a 340 and we had crew rest, uh, then the captain, if he's his crew isn't using it, is allowed to offer it to um, deadheading uh, crew members. So we, I, if the captain had said yes, I could have legally used it to rest him. But as it turned out, I had a flat bed, albeit you know it's not a very, not quite big enough for a large chap. Um, but uh, no, in theory, I could have done yes. Okay, that's good. And that would have been very pleasant because it's a bit bigger and it's nice to stretch out and it's quieter and you don't have other snoring people around you. Although. To be absolutely fair, uh, the cabin crew like to sneak in there if the pilots aren't using it. Uh, so it may not have been very popular with the cabin crew. Ah, yeah, you gotta gotta be careful now, there. Now, can I ask you a, a related question? And you, you'll like this question because uh, you, okay. you yeah, sure. uh, well, actually, uh, Jeff will like this question because so I'm not gonna like this question. <laughs> well, you, you, yeah, it, it, well, it depends on whether you can or cannot, but. When you're deadheading out of uniform, and you're obviously deadheading like tonight, where when you get back to London, you'll be a, a, a turkey. You can't go fly. Are you allowed to have an alcoholic beverage on the aircraft? Oh, once uh, once the doors closed, yeah. Interesting. Okay, oh, it's no problem at all. Yeah, if um, you're not consider you're considered available to be um, dragged off the airplane. In fact, the company, they don't have a specific rule for it, but what they say is what we'd like you to do is, particularly if the aircraft is one that you are qualified to fly, 
you don't in, indulge until the doors are closed and basically the aircraft's buttoned up, ready to go, because there's they, they're unlikely to call on you then, perhaps to fill in uh, on the flight deck. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, and it's it's not written in stone, but uh, it's certainly heavily um, hinted at. Uh, up to that point, you really don't, and I wouldn't, because quite honestly, I'm as keen to get home as anyone. And if uh, one of the pilots uh, uh, fell over, not well, um, you know, just before about to depart, and the captain said, "God, we haven't got any dead ending crew on, have we?" Uh, I would be as keen to get home as anyone. So I'm not personally tonight. I'm not going to indulge until I'm, you know, uh, on the aircraft and uh, we're, you know, airborne. And then I might have a few glasses of wine with my meal. That'll be lovely. Few is mm. like five or more. Oh yeah, a few bottles, <laughs> a few <laughs> bottles of wine. Yeah, yeah. If we're deadheading uh, in on the flight deck. Uh, then you're not allowed to drink. No alcohol in the flight. Yeah, you know, I was, uh, this caught, this actually got me once, and I think I've I've told this story before, and I'm hoping that, remember, I fly for Acme Airlines. Um, I was in the, I had the jump seat going out to LA because I was going out to California a lot to uh, visit my mom uh, before she passed. And I, um, I was up there and the flight attendant came up and she goes, well, you don't get a lot of seats in the back. In fact, I think there's some, you know, comfort plus or whatever Acme calls the, uh, the seats between business class and regular economy. And, and, uh, so I looked at the captain and I said, would it be okay with you? Of course, you know, the, the obvious answer is of course, anytime anybody's going to leave your cockpit and not be, you know, staring over your shoulder for an entire flight, you're going to say, yes, that would be just fine for me if you went and sat back in the back. Yeah, everybody would be more comfortable that way. So I did and went back there and I started getting my little screen out, you know, as we took off and, you know, watching, looking at my selection of movies for, I thought, yeah, I could probably see at least two, two movies on this flight. And the flight attendant comes by and she goes, you know, would you like something to drink? And I'm thinking, um, cause I had some cheese and fruit, fruit and cheese platters or whatever. And I'm thinking, yeah, some red wine would really be nice with this. And so she comes and gives me this glass of red wine and I take one sip, and as soon as I did, I went, <gasps> I'm not allowed to have wine because I am, even though I'm not in the cockpit, I uh, am still not allowed to imbibe alcohol. I'm still considered part of that crew. So I don't sure. know if the, the rules are the same for your airline, Nick, but even though I'm not actually in the cockpit anymore, and I'm, and I'm likely never going to return to that cockpit during this flight. Uh, and and I'm in civilian clothing and the whole the whole bit, but uh, technically, I was not allowed to have any alcohol, and so I had one sip before I realized it. And I kind of looked around. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I don't want to be fired for you know for accidentally breaking one of these rules. But uh, anyway, it's actually an FAR. Is it? Yeah, because you you're actually acting as part of a crew member, and so you. By, by FARs, you're not supposed to have any. Well, that's the case. I'm going to cut all this out of the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This person you were talking about, Jeff, what's his name? That was all hypothetical. Yeah, I'm thinking, exactly. Oh, you know what I meant to say is that I was about to take a sip. Yeah. And right before, I mean, it was like the glass was on my lower lip. And before the liquid actually came out, I realized, oh, wow, that was a close one. I almost had a sip of alcohol. <laughs> absolutely absolutely how's that, sound? Like that gonna work? i don't know if it's an far or not 
<laughs> All right, that's it. Danny, you're fired. Yeah. <laughs> you're fired. <laughs> I would I, I would I would surmise it's probably something cuz you you're, you're part of the crew. I mean, but I don't I don't know. I was not and acting was, as a crew member, but I know technically, at least as far as Acme is concerned, that is a regulation. Yeah. <sighs> anyway, yeah. but it was purely, you know, I'm being completely honest and upfront. I just never intended to uh to to break that rule and uh, as soon as I uh, almost took a sip. I went, <gasps> wow, I could have lost my job over that. Well, Armando said it properly. It's Neff Gielson. Neff Gielson. That, that, that's <laughs> the guy that had the wine. <laughs> <laughs> and this was like, uh, I don't know, probably about 40, 50 years ago, I think, uh, if you want to look it up. <laughs> Doesn't Neff Gielson uh, fly the um, dad, um, dad da- mog? Damog. <laughs> Damog. Damog. <laughs> The dad mog. <laughs> I don't know. Actually, the dad mog zero niner. Actually, yeah. to be honest with you, tell you a little secret. I'm not really an airline pilot. I've made all this stuff up. Wow. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're wow. Pretty good. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah. I've picked up a little stuff here and there, listening to other podcasts. Mainly watching that that movie. Uh, what was the one? Uh, uh, airplane. That's it. No, no. The, I was thinking about the one where the guy poses as an airline pilot. Oh, oh yeah. Catch uh, me if you can. Catch me if you can. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? We knocked out a lot of feedback here. We did. Um, I, d- I did save some of the feedback that I was going to play for this episode, mainly because it involves uh, medical issues. And uh, we were hoping that uh, staff were uh, would be with us by now to uh, answer those questions. But sadly, uh, she's not going to make it again uh, this week. So, Steph, pretty much it's your show next week. You're going to hand- answer all the feedback. <laughs> but um Anyway, I might, we, I might take a week off then. <laughs> yeah, we all I'm take definitely a week off, off next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Jeff all and right. Steph show. There you go. Okay. Well, thanks everyone uh, for listening to the show, downloading it from iTunes or whatever podcast client that you use, uh, listening to it on the website. Again, we do have this wonderful website, airlinepilotguy.com, where you can find out information about the show, the crew, the community. Whoops. And, uh, the coffee fund, merchandise, you can watch the show live, you can listen to the show. Uh, what else can you do there? So much more, I'm sure. Uh, again, airlinepilotguy.com. Also, don't forget, if you have one of these little devices we call cell phones, um, smartphones, whatever, or tablets, uh, there's um, an app that you can get for your phone uh, by heading to the iOS App Store. If you have an Apple uh, product or if you have an Android product, head over to the google play store and there you can download the airline pilot guy app free of charge no advertising and uh, you can do a lot of stuff there as well and social media uh captain nick you want to cover that yeah you can find us on facebook and look for the airline pilot guy uh, on facebook and uh, you avoid join us on uh, twitter then just tweet uh, at apg crew all right and slack Hillel is here to tell us about that. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1, and see you in Slack. See you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel. And uh, until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. 
Take care and God bless. Bye, everybody. Have a great time. Bye-bye. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. It ain't Boeing, I ain't going.